Once again, a big thank you to Wild Earth Australia for their continuous support and being a company that really believes in the adventurous lifestyle. Now, if you need any gear for your next adventure, running, hiking, camping, climbing, survival, you name it, there you have it. So go to the website wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code Diaries of the Wild Ones, all one word, capital letters. Free shipping Australia-wide, they even ship internationally. This is a really special episode for me, and I feel so lucky to have had this opportunity to sit down with a guy that inspires me to live out my own dreams, with a guy that shows me that it's all possible, with a guy that has pushed himself to his absolute limits. This is my hero. You're about to meet polar explorer Dr. Jeff Wilson, the holder of three world records longest land journey ever by kite across the sahara desert first ever kite surfing expedition across the Torres straits between australia and papua new guinea fastest unsupported crossing of antarctica under wind power 3428 kilometers in 53 days this dude did he has been an adventurer and an explorer his whole life and i'm going to do as many podcasts with him as possible because he is absolutely wild this guy is absolutely crazy And I just love it. And I know you guys are going to love it too. So this is Diaries of the Wild Ones with the ultimate wild man himself, Dr. Jeff Wilson. Enjoy. How you feeling, Jeff? Good, right? Yeah, good to be here with you. It's fun talking about adventure. It is fun talking about adventure. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I'll put you in hero status for me. Oh, it's great to hear. Well, I've got a supporting fan, basically. Yeah, you've got a, got a supporting <laughs> fan. Well, and as I just said to you before, after reading your book, it's really, it's really brought to my attention how my own mind works, like why I do the things that I do. And I think the biggest thing that I realized is like when you're doing these things, okay, so you're, how old are you now? Oh, mate, uh, just the last year of my 40s, so 49. So you're 49. Mm. Oh, you're coming on 50. And so you're still pushing it quite hard. But- yeah, I think, mate, there's this tripping point uh, in the male psyche, I think, where your body starts to be less strong, but your mind is stronger, so you can compensate. So you'll see a lot of the polar records are set by guys in their late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, right. Um, a lot of endurance records. So the guy that just supped across the Pacific, 55. So I think... Um, you know, in your 30s, you don't really have the mental strength yet. Do you reckon that's just something as like coming into yourself as a as a man? Like as in like coming into learning how the mind works, you know, like as like learning responsibility or anything? Yeah, I think it's more um, also the balance between pushing hard enough that you make mileage but not snapping stuff. Like a, I think I push so hard in my 30s that I'd just break. Yeah. And then the journey would be over. Pretty much. You've been an adventurer your whole life. And this is what's actually really exciting about me because this is just the first podcast that I'm going to do and I'm just going to keep trying to, I'm just going to tr- keep trying to get time with you to get all these stories out. But so basically we're here now just to, to touch base and really talk about, would you say going to Antarctica was well, a world record that you've set, but would you say this is the biggest adventure you've ever done? Uh, yeah, you know, to some degree, I think it was one of those journeys where it was brutal um, you know, within three days of starting, the most savage storm to hit the Antarctic coastline in 50 years was on me. And it's kind of like, you know, when, you, when you're new, say you're stepping into the octagon to fight someone yeah. for the first time and you don't really know what your abilities are. 
because you've never fought someone of that stature before. So you step in, you're shit scared, and suddenly you're in the fight. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with the first Antarctic journey. I stepped into the octagon and, man, it smacked me around. But, yeah. you know, 53 days later I was still alive. Well, let, let's let's take it back a bit. So where did, so you, did you, when you first planned to go to Antarctica, did you have it in your mind that you wanted to go for a world record? Like where did this idea, so you've been an adventurer your whole life. Was this the pinnacle? Did you, where did this idea come from to be like, you know what, I'm going to cross Antarctica? Oh, this is, you know, there's always this debate, do we mix adventure with charity? And my argument is if the journey or the dream is difficult enough, you're going to need rocket fuel to propel you through it. One of the big rocket fuels for me is being aligned with the right charity. So when the shit hits the fan, you have a bigger reason than just getting you as in like home. do you mean as in when stuff gets really hard especially in the mind you're not just doing it for yourself anymore yeah exactly so i, I mean as a really small example a good friend of mine now faisal hanesh uh, a french explorer was in that same first storm that hit the antarctic coast we're within 30 kilometers of our start point so we're only just left the coast so there were no mountains around us to slow the wind down. There was no altitude to calm the storm. We were pretty close to sea level and at full frontal assault, you know. Yeah. 200 kilometer hour winds, air temperature of well below minus 35. And, you know, 50 ways you could die in any one day during the storm. The storm went for four, five, six days. The storm finishes and I'm already focusing on the reason I'm there, which is to raise funds for the McGrath Foundation, the breast cancer charity in Australia. I dust myself off, pack the tent, get moving. Faisal takes another two days to get out of his sleeping bag. Like he's mentally and physically wrung out. Yeah. And because he's just there to break records, um, it's not enough. It's just for himself. Not enough. Where did you get – take me back to when you – idea – first sparked in in your mind i mean every journey is different but this one i remember the moment was um obviously as a vet i'm treating people's animals and i had this lady katie carlisle come in with her two jack russell pugs we we were joking that i was treating her jugs yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is not which is frowned upon as a veterinarian obviously um, anyway, she brought her jugs in to get looked yeah. at. And then we started talking about her real jugs, like her breast cancer issue. She was diagnosed with breast cancer at 31, mastectomy, chemo, all in the clear, had the reconstructive surgery, bang, it's on her again. She'd just been diagnosed again when I met with her. And I said, listen, let's have a coffee. So I had no appointments for over the lunch break, so I went and had lunch with her. And she was telling me a story, and I'm like, man, there's got to be a journey that I can do to showcase what this woman's talking about, what she's going through. Yeah. And so then, the charity idea came first. Yeah, the charity idea came first. And that's yeah. generally, I don't find, I don't think I've done a journey in the last 15 years that hasn't been attached to a charity first. Really? Because that's the rocket fuel. As long as it's a charity that you genuinely believe in, this whole habit of just tacking on a charity as the last minute thing doesn't help you it's got to be something that you'd be prepared to die for yeah so you've you've obviously learned this it's like that to me so you 
Would you say you're addicted to pushing your mind and learning the power of your own mind? Yeah, I mean, I'm cautious with it because I think the stronger you get mentally, you can definitely get to a point where you can push yourself to death like Henry yeah. Worsley. So Henry Worsley was trying to break my 53-day crossing record two, three years ago and his stomach ruptured and he managed to pull a sled for another seven days before he gave up. Whoa. So that that's a level of mental resilience beyond what's human, but it ended up killing him. So there's a real balance. And I think having the charity come first, then you design the adventure to showcase the charity, yeah. then bring all your skills to bear. And, you know, there's a process of what I call uplinking. So for every journey, I would go, okay, what skills do I have that are going to make this dream come to pass? What do I not have and who can I connect to to get those skills? So for me, for the first journey, it was like, okay, what do I want to chase here? I want to break the record for the fastest coast-to-coast crossing through the South Pole. Had you, had you done so anything like, like this before? Anything no, like in nothing Arctic? Nothing in the cold. So, had you, so you never felt the extreme in the Arctic before? No, I don't even like being the Antar- cold. The funny thing is I don't even like the cold. What do you like, call it down there? Because I've only been up to the Arctic and I, we call it the Arctic, the South, the Antarctic. The Antar- Antarctic. Yeah, the, yeah Antarctic. the Antarctic. So the two extremes, obviously North Pole, South Pole, but... Um, I mean, up in the Arctic, you would have felt it even in Iceland. It's a real wet cold. Yeah. The great thing with the Antarctic is that really dry cold. So it can be minus 50 and not feel too bad. But yeah. like a wet minus 30 is horrendous. Yeah, that's actually what I noticed. When I, the first night I was in Iceland, I'd come from Montreal and it was minus 22. And I flew to New York for a few days and I went to, went to Iceland. The first day, first morning I was in Iceland, it was minus 5. And it was the coldest. It was way colder than minus 22 because yeah. 22 was the dry, dry heat. And obviously it did get colder when I was in Iceland. But I just remember that first morning, I remember walking out of the airport, the thing said minus five. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. And I had to um, walk out and get this bus to where I was getting this car, where I was picking this car up and um, or where the boys were picking me up. But it, I just remember waiting for the bus and I thought I was going to pass out. I've never felt anything like it. And I was like, well, this is, I didn't get why minus five was so much colder than this minus 22 that I had a few days before. And yeah. it just, that kind of wet cold erodes into you. So definitely uh, the Antarctic is not as brutal as the Arctic um, and drying stuff's a lot easier, which means you're using less fuel. And so we factor all that in, but yeah, the getting back to the uplinking, I knew that my polar capabilities were nowhere near enough to attempt a solo and bearing in mind you're eight times more likely to die on a solo than you are as a duo did you okay so you've you've seen this woman um that sparked this thing you know like you want to do something you want to spread awareness um there's a passion there there's something that is going to give you extra drive you've decided okay i want to do something did you research like what records you could do was it what did it have to be a world record or did you just want to do something crazy just want to do something crazy and i remember drawing on a napkin i drew basically it was a set of boobs made into a sled and i said mate you know the play on words bobsled boob yeah. sled was out of no let's build a boob sled and i'll pull it from one side of antarctica to the other to raise awareness for these incredible nurses that had carried her through this horrendous treatment and i said man surely that's going to get noticed so i came home hopped into bed next to sarah and said hey and sarah's your wife yeah Yeah. so do you reckon anyone's dragged a boob sled 
across Antarctica and she just looked at me and go, you've got to stop having chocolate before bed. Seriously, you, yeah. you need to just chill. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, oh, well, that's a no probably. Anyway, I went to bed. The next morning I woke up and said, hey, I know this is crazy, but would you let us make a sled out of your boobs? And she was like, man, you've, you've completely lost it this time. What the hell are you talking about? And I explained the whole concept and, you know, the stuff that Katie Carlisle was going through. And she's a very patient woman, Listen, heard me out and said, yeah, you know, maybe it'll work. Let, let's talk to a few people. Pretty soon this boob sled idea was snowballing. So obviously your, your wife believes in you, which yeah, is amazing, she, you know. She She's, I mean, it's that whole tempering of steel, you know. My first journey wasn't a solo Antarctic crossing and I've been wandering in and out of the bush our whole married life. It's not like I've had a midlife crisis. I was like this when she met me. So, you know, a lot of people would look at Sarah and go, oh, man, how does she go through all the stress? Yeah. Um, But, you know, her dreams and visions I support and she supports mine. And we've been very fortunate to find each other because I I think that's that's key to my success is having having um, a family that understand what I'm doing. Supportive, yeah. And also, there's plenty of journeys I've come to Sarah and gone, hey, this is my plan. And probably the most recent was uh, we were trying to jump out of a balloon at 40,000 feet to break the longest freefall record. And she's like, man, this is not your area of expertise. You're just doing a media stunt. I don't like it. And I ignored her to my peril and eventually a year later after spending a fortune on hot air balloons and training and I'd hit an instructor mid-air doing 260k an hour and nearly killed him um the disaster that was coming you know Sarah saw it a year beforehand and and I pulled out of the journey yeah so there's got that woman intuition oh incredible You, you speak about it in your book actually and um it it made me think a lot because I, even before I even reading your book, I was questioning myself a lot because um, it's been the peril, it's been the downfall of relationships for me is the way my mind works and the, and how I just want to go out and just, and, and do things. And especially for women, this is, is it, it's insecurity. It's like you, you're there to provide this security for her, but when you're an adventurer and it's like, that's just something that I had to actually come to terms with as myself. You know, I was like, it's like you're, there's no one can not say you're an adventurer and explorer. That's exactly what you are. And it was like something that I just realized within myself that my life, the last 13 years, and then reading your story and that you got this, you've got this understanding between the two of you. And it's just like, wow, it is so possible. It is so possible to live out your dreams and be able to love and support each other. And I think that's a matter of finding someone who is wired. They may not have to be wired the same way, but they understand there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. You know, being an adventurer. If if you or I were born a hundred years ago, we would be hacking our way through the Amazon looking for Inca gold. Yeah. You know, or we'd be, you know, climbing Kilimanjaro, or or I often you know, think that yeah. You know, uh, we'd be discovering new places. The problem we have. That same gene has been carried through and we're now bound in a world where red tape, we're, we're hacking through jungles of red tape just to get an adventure off the ground. Yeah. You know, Alaska last year was so refreshing as we landed, pumped up a couple of kayaks, took an aircraft 
into the wilderness. The guy dropped us off and said, if you're not back in two weeks, we'll send a search party. That yeah. was it. And it was like, wow, we haven't had to sign a form. No department's been notified. This is what it used to be like. Yeah. Whereas for me to go to Antarctica, it's been a five-year battle with red tape to get this journey across the line. And I think, you know, you're always going to feel a little bit caged in the modern world unless you're doing, answering the call. And I, I think that helps you, but like with a, having so much red tape in, in Antarctica and having um, like doing it for a reason, for a cause, do you reckon like five years of red tape, it's like, do you reckon that pushes your mind even stronger? Because now you're there, you're finally there. Now you've, this is like the one opportunity. Do you reckon, do you reckon that even helps you, but? Yeah, I, I was tape? thinking about it today because we, we trained this morning for the first time after a three-week break and you can feel that your fitness has slipped a little bit. Yeah. And then I'm sitting there going, don't stress about it. If you just get to the start line on this one, then that's a miracle. Yeah. You know, there was so much. So many people who said, you, you'll never get this journey past. There's no, you can't do 6,000 kilometers in Antarctica and get everybody to agree that you're passing through their territory. So it, that's, so what's the problem in, in Antarctica? Is it because of the South Pole um, is governed by so many different countries? Like everyone has a piece, everyone has a wedge? Yeah, there's 11 member nations. And then the initial problem was I wanted to do, even in my first journey, I wanted to do the longest crossing possible. And I couldn't do it because I, I didn't have the name as a polar explorer. They're like, Jeff, who, who, who the hell is this guy? We're not going to let him go into East Antarctica. It's, no one can save him if he gets in trouble. So we'll let him go into West Antarctica, and that way we can get a plane to him if he breaks a leg or something. So that journey I managed to get permission for, did it, smashed the time, and there's a whole bunch of reasons that you'll see in the book as to why... Which we'll go into to soon, but so how did you, so you had to apply to get through West Antarctica. You, do you have to apply with each nation that you're crossing their territory? Yeah. So say, you know, the original journey was Norwegian, Russian, French, American, Australian, New Zealand territory. So you've got to apply for all of those permits. But the irony is the Australian one is the linchpin. If the Australians say, listen, this is an Australian citizen, we back him, then everybody else will go, oh, they back him, we'll back him. This one's been different in that the Russians have stuck their hand up first and gone, we know, Jeff, we know this is a crazy journey. If we move fuel from point A to point B, we can cover his return journey. We'll do all the search and rescue for him. You Aussies, you scared Aussies, don't worry, we'll look after him. You're kidding. So the Russians, so you've proved yourself in the first journey, which we will get back to in a second, but you've proved yourself so much that now you're doing a wild, a crazier journey and the Russians have actually gone, you know what, this guy's, you've made a name for yourself there. Well, they're, they're amazing and that they're, they're kind of where we were 50 years ago, you know, still pioneering. Yeah. They're trying to expand Russia's borders. They're trying to, you know, the country's on the move. They're hard men with, hard attitudes yeah they're tough they they've still got an adventurous spirit whereas i kind of feel like in australia we're starting to play a safe yeah we're too easy we definitely play it too easy playing safe bat it's like the batsman just batting away but he's not trying to hit sixes anymore the russians are wildly out there swinging and i relate to a guy 
I'd rather see a guy wildly swinging and get out for a duck than just sitting there for an hour. Yeah, and playing it safe. Playing safe. Lucky, just come on, mate. Yeah, you got to take chances in life. Yeah, we're here for a short time. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, we get one life, it's like, you got to go for it. You know what I mean? And that is, and like that attitude definitely gets me into trouble sometimes, but that's where all my fun comes from. And and I I, so I think I have friends or people that love to say when I do come so unstuck and have to, love to say to me like, oh, see, you know, see, like, like I, I've just blown my knee out. And everyone's like, um, see, you need to calm down. You need to slow down. I'm like, no, I don't like, I don't know. There's one other hurdle. It's just like another hurdle, but it's like, it's, I don't know, sometimes I feel like that's, uh, it's a mirror image of them as in like, um, where they're not pushing themselves or they're, where they're fearing to, to go beyond their limits. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then it's like, oh, no, see, now he's back to our level. He's come back to, down. Do you kind of get where... I think, yeah, you often make people feel a bit unsafe. Um, and Sarah put an amazing post up two days ago because she had, she had a woman come, come up to her and say, um, I've heard the new journey's going ahead. Your husband's crazy. And she just looked at her and said, you know, if he was a firefighter or a window cleaner on a high rise, you, you know, it would be extremely rude to come up and say you're crazy. Yeah. You just wouldn't say it. So why would you say it? Because he's pushing boundaries in the adventure world. It's seen as an elective. It's not an elective for me. It's not an elective for you. It's the way we're wired. Yeah. And it's, no more an elective than breathing air. If I was to curl up and just live a sedentary urban life, um, it would be similar to a butterfly deciding not to open its wings. You like? Yeah. So, what do you think it is inside your mind, right? Okay. So, I know people that are content and happy just sitting on the couch, and like it's they're not limiting themselves at all because they are so content doing that, and that is their lifestyle, and that's what they like to do. But it's like, what is it in you that puts you so at the other end of the spectrum? Like, you know, that you're so far at the other end of the spectrum where you need that high stimulant, you need that high adrenaline adventure to feel like you're living. Have you ever wondered that? Yeah, and, and like, there's times when you go, man, I wish I was satisfied with a more sedentary life because you, you could probably, I know you'd be a lot wealthier because you wouldn't be wasting all this time, you know, trying to build adventures. You'd be out probably earning some cash. <laughs> but, but the reality is um, I think, you know, if you look at everything in life, it's on a bell curve. You've got your big pack in the middle and then your outliers, the guy, you know, who on one end is happy just being on the sofa and then me on the other end, you need people like me to draw people off the sofa. Yeah. To go, they might only ever watch a film of yours and go, wow, that was amazing. I might go for a jog. That might be as far as you get them. You might just move them to, to go for a jog, but at least they're, you're stimulating them in some sort of way. And I I think more and more uh, adventure around the world has become armchair. Yeah. You know, people want a virtual reality adventure. So potentially there's a role for me and you going forward, yeah. just providing content and doing crazy stuff. But, I mean, the, the thing for me, I, I would challenge that most all of my journeys of whilst on the outside they look um, crazy, there's a huge amount of back-end 
sort of risk management and thought yeah. gone well, into it's calculated them. risk. Calculated, making sure that every eventuality I've seen ahead of time and I've got three fixes for it in my mind. So, yeah, you know, and that that kind of uh, thought process is so valuable. And and it, everything we're learning in the field is applicable back in urban life. So bringing all of those learnings back in has been a huge thing for me. And, you know, just sitting in a tent for 90 days in Antarctica as, as a dad, as a husband, is a pretty selfish endeavour. And this is where the balance has always got to be there. There's got to be some good come out of it. Yeah. Otherwise, it, it is just a waste. Do you find time. you learn appreciation? Like that you learn more appreciation for life and for those loved ones when oh, you're out there yeah. like, because you've got those yeah, times time. to com- contemplate, but plus you're also in a high stress situation where your life is literally on the line. And we w- we'll get into that whole adventure in a second, but um, your life is so on the line there and you're just there and all you have is you and your mind. And it's like, I find when I do that stuff, like, fuck, I, well, I was in tears in the mountains. Like I, well, when I thought I nearly killed myself, it's like, I, that was one of the biggest realizations I've ever had in my life. And I actually had like so much emotion leave me. I, I saw stuff that I was holding on to, and I came back with so much appreciation for, yeah, for, for loved ones and everything. But do you find like after you do these trips and then you come back that you can be more of a loving husband, more of a loving father? Like, yeah, I think even leading up to them, like we're conscious now, it's nine weeks before I go. And there's always that, you know, what if I don't make it home? Yeah. Have, have I let my friends know how much they mean to me? Have I let my kids know how much they mean to me? Have I let my wife know? You know, I've got to be comfortable with the fact that if I don't make it home, that I've communicated clearly enough before I've gone so that there's no doubt that um, my loved ones know what I feel about them. But the other, the other side is when you're there, I'm very, very disciplined that I, I don't actually think of family more than one hour a day and I don't allow myself free thought at home until I'm halfway once I'm past the halfway mark, then open the floodgates. So I have to be... Because that's the light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, it's the light at the end of the tunnel and you've got to stay totally focused to increase your chances of getting home. You just don't want to think about it. You've got to focus on every step, being cautious and yeah. pushing as hard as you can to get the mileage, but then making sure that you're making good decisions for your cold management, crevasse management. Yeah. Um, so, so- Let's let's go into this trip. So it's just um so you've had this idea and you've brought it up with your wife, having a sled, and then you realise it's something crazy and you're not a polar explorer. So from this point, how did you make this happen? How did you start Yeah, and so get the This is probably a year out from D Day. I've gone shit, I've got a year to accumulate skills. So we built this sled moulded Darling Sarah's breasts, and then we magnified it by 48 times, built it out of Kevlar. And so then, it literally is your wife's breast. Yeah, it's a complete copy. Yeah, so, right. and which is kind of bizarre seeing them in the Antarctic. Yeah. Um, and then I flew them up to the Arctic Circle. And, uh, but prior to that, I'd rung Borjusland, who held the record at 67 days for a solo unsupported crossing set in 1987 so that record had sat there for a long time and and, and where's he he's based out of norway 
Oslo. So, so you just got a hold of him. Got a hold of him, finally got on him, email, then phone, rang him, said, hey, um, thanks for taking my call. And he said, oh, you've been chasing me for a while. What's going on? And I said, listen, I want to break your record. And he had a laugh. And I said, no, no, seriously, I want you to train me to a point where I can break your record. Like, what a brilliant idea. What yeah, a brilliant so, way to approach it. And that also takes that ego out of it for him. It gives him a new meaning. Yeah. And he, he's phenomenal. Like, super hard guy. The Norwegians are hard men anyway, but um, probably the most accomplished polar explorer of our of our age. And to then have him go, yep, cool, I'll train you. I'll guide your training. So I never trained directly with him, but he basically said, listen, I can't train you one on one, but I can guide you to who I want, who I would train with. So mentor you, yeah. So he mentored me through it, and then I flew all the way to the Arctic Circle and trained with probably the toughest female explorer on the planet, Maddie McNair. Where'd you Where'd you fly to? Oh, a place called Akalawit, which is right up near Baffin Island, so it's not far from the Arctic. Is that near the Svalbard? Svalbard, no. Oh, in a direct line, yeah. It's not far. It would it would be more around the clock face. Yeah, yeah. Than Svalbard, but probably not as north. Yeah, it'd be a little bit south of Svalbard, but uh, but it's you know year round ice and snow, thousands of huskies on the ice, and I was sleeping with the huskies and they're screaming their heads off, and it's minus thirty, and I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? So how'd you go with that first initial shock? realizing what you're getting yourself into yeah i mean i remember the first night in a tent at minus 30 and the dogs are screaming and just going what the hell am i doing here just breathing was uncomfortable and you'd wake up with a shroud of ice over your face and the inside of the tent all iced up and um almost a feeling of panic like what the hell have i talked myself into but then maddie was such a competent confident polar explorer that she just broke it down into really simple skill sets and over two weeks, my first solo was right at the end of the two weeks. Yeah. And by then you're kind of solo, you're pulling your own sled, you're feeding yourself, you're running the stove, you're making your own water and managing, you know, your frost injuries and all that sort of stuff. And this, this was, um, was this self-funded? This yeah, trip? yeah. 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 So all, all self-funded. And, and when you say, um, managing um is that, is that frostbite yeah like were so, you... well i just like at that sort of temperature you're always going to get some thermal injury on your face and your hands and your feet and it's about stopping early enough before it goes from frost nip to frostbite yeah and, and that's were you oiling up or what were you doing uh, to just just adding more layers or drying the gear out or taking your boots off and just checking because yeah problem in ski boots they feel cramped at the best of time just learning, you know, what's pain and what's frostbite yeah. and stopping early enough. And Especially because you, you go to, you, you go numb and you just don't feel it after a while and you just keep going. and Keep going. And this is the thing that I love with Maddie McNair because the Canadians and the Norwegians see frostbite as a stupidity. Like if you get frostbite on an expedition, then you have failed your management in some way. Whereas the British approach has always been a bit of a badge of honour. Like if, if a British mountaineer loses a foot or a hand on Everest, it's like, wow, slap on the back and buy him a beer. Whereas the Canadians and the Norwegians are like, guy's a muppet. Like yeah. he's mismanaged something on that climb. So training under Maddie, it was really great to get that ingrained early. And it's the whole domino 
looking for. Is it? Sorry, mate. Is this your phone call you need to take? No. No, I've got another half, 20, 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, so getting that ingrained early that frostbite is not a badge of honour, it's a it's a real failing. Yeah. And that, you know, uplinking, sucking up all of Matty McNair's information and then going back to Borge and then um, back on to, to New Zealand to link with yet another incredible female adventurer, Lydia, Lydia Brady. Yeah. Um, because I knew nothing about crevasse so travel. How did you get hooked up with these people, just basically just asking around and finding people in this adventure world? Yeah, and this is something I talk with adventurers or budding adventurers all the time. I go, listen, uplink, uplink, uplink. Yeah. Um, now with Google, you can you know, basically write down your skill set and go, okay, for this adventure that I've planned for myself, what do I feel confident in? Great, I, I'll just hone them. But where do I see gaps? And be honest with yourself. Yeah. Uh, because your life could depend upon it. And then on those gaps, just get onto Google and go, okay, who's the number one polar guy in the world? Borges Land. Cool. Bang, tick, done. Connect with him. Who is the number one person that I would want to train me to cross crevasse country? And a whole bunch of names came up. But Lydia Brady really caught my eye. Um, tough Kiwi girl, the first female to summit. Everest without oxygen, and she's crossed the Kumbu Icefall, which is that horrible crevassed ice at the base of Everest, Yeah, uh, more times than probably any other woman on Earth. So I'm thinking, man, she's local. She's just across the ditch. Yeah. Um, let's see if I can contact her. Contact her. She's like, yeah, sure. 200 kilometers of crevassed ice? You're crazy. Because the, the beginning of this journey was what they called the Somo Vecan Glacier, and it's basically this broken tortured ice for 200 kilometers and going in there rope to a climbing partner is is bad enough but to go roped connected to a set of boobs that are not going to help you if you fall in yeah was crazy and lydia from the outset said listen you just don't want to fall into a crevasse you know i said well it may not be possible to avoid that i've got 200 kilometers of them how do you if you what's the training like if you fall into one how do you get it i fell through the ice in in Iceland on a mountain, I could hear a waterfall and I started getting like really cautious of it. And I took another, I was spiking up a mountain and I took another step and my leg fell through and just fell through to an open cavity. And I was just, I, you know, obviously went into panic mode and it's like, it's okay, just back out, back out and put my weight on my back leg. And then my back leg fell through. So now then I was waste and my legs are just on this open cavity. And I, I managed to flood myself out and climb out and go backwards or to the side and I was just thinking, I've seen a video of you fall into a crevasse. And it's just like, I don't understand if you fall in. In my mind, I, I, I've, been, I've thought about this a lot because obviously it, it was I was so close to losing my life when I did it. I don't understand how could you could even get out of that situation. If you fall through the ice or fall into a crevasse, I don't understand how you can get out. Like, what is the training there? How do they... Well, the idea, hopefully, if you're climbing, is that the sled... You basically have a shovel facing down onto the line between you and the sled. So you imagine you fall through, say you're five meters under the ice surface. The shovel will bury in <gasps> and it stops the sled following you. Yeah. But also the weight, like you're 80, 90 kilos with all your load on. The sled's 200 kilos. It should hold. But that only bears... Say you're halfway across a massive ice cap and the whole thing goes, 
then you're done. And some of those holes are a kilometre deep because the ice is at the top of the Somo Beckon is nearly five kilometres thick. So your safety mechanism is this shovel. And so basically if, if you're travelling along and you fall into a crevasse, you're just praying that that shovel catches and digs in. Yeah. And if it doesn't, there's uh, no plan B. There's no plan B because the, the sled's going to follow you in. And there were two times on that climb where I got across a cap because I couldn't get around it. And I, I lengthened the line and then I buried my ass in on good ice and then pulled the sled over as quick as I can, thinking if it goes, I don't know that I'm going to be able to hold it. And if it does go and you hold it, what are you going to do? You're, you're connected yeah. solo to a sled that's pulling you into a crevasse. You, eventually you're going to have to cut the line and and then that's the end of your trip. So... That was a real area where I needed uplinking because I had no mountaineering skills. I had no crevasse knowledge. And I flew to New Zealand and spent time with one of the greatest crevasse sort of crosses in the world. And she just uplinked me to a point where I'm like, okay, cool. I'm ready for this. Yeah. But uh, in the process, I ended up saving a life. Like it was crazy. So she she stepped into a crevasse while trying to show me how not to, and I thought she was mucking around. But next minute she's gone, and I'm getting pulled sideways towards the same crevasse. So I swing my bum around, jam an ice axe in, and hold her fall. She's seven meters below the surface. So right. you guys are walking along a crevasse, and she's showing you what not to do. Yeah, falls we're, in we're roped up. And did you think it was just a test, like that you've got to catch her and? Well, she, this is one of the world's most experienced mountaineers and she's never fallen into a crevasse. So for me to think, okay, she's just made a mistake and fallen into a crevasse, that can't be happening. Uh, this must be a test. So I thought she was pulling the line, but she's gone. Like there's no sign of her. She's entered the crevasse and it swallowed her up. And it was about... How many metres from you? Oh, we were roped on about a 30-metre line. So she was about, by the time I halted a fall, it was about 23 metres away and she was seven metres under the surface. But she said, listen, she would have fallen for way longer. Like it, it would have ended up snapping her back or breaking her legs, um, like a 100-metre deep hole underneath her with, with really rough, sharp ice on the bottom. So... And this, and this whole time in the in the training and everything for for you is it just an adventure? Or are you scared? Are you? No, this is what I'd call a you know faith eye moment. You know, you you build for every journey. I, I'll build an image of what it looks like for me to get safely home, and I'll meditate on that. And that's usually me coming back through the door. I'm happy. Everybody's happy. Everyone's well at home. And I think for me that protects the family at home it also means that i stay focused yeah on getting home and when lydia brady stepped into the crevasse and i started to get pulled towards her when i finally arrested her fall and then a crack developed between where she was and me and the whole mountainside on the left looked like it was going to go and it probably would have sucked us over about a 400 meter drop um, I started to realise that that faith eye image of me getting home was starting to shake and quiver. And, you know, like when you get bad reception on the TV, yeah. you're like, shit, this is not looking uh, good. And then you kind of go have a hell no moment, what I call a pound the ground moment, 
punch the snow and go, no, I'm going to fight my way back out of this. I'm getting home and then really start focusing back on firming up that image. Go, no, I'm seeing myself walking through the door. Yeah. I'm going to fight this. And that's where you get that extra, I call it, um, for me, I call it the mongrel comes out. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly you just have this inner fight that just takes over and it's just like, and it's just like, I, I just remember like, yeah, it's like, come at me kind of thing. And it's like, even though nature's so much bigger than you, but it's just like, it's like that, is that all you got, you know, yeah, kind yeah. of moment? You're like, nah, you haven't got me yet. I'm still here kind of thing. And you're like, I'm still here. I'm holding on. And fuck I think you, you, need, you need that. And that's, that's something you can't teach people the mongrel in an urban environment. You've got to take them out there yeah. to, to, to get them to a point where they, and, you know, numerous journeys, there's been that pound the ground moment. And then a change in circumstance. So it kind of builds your faith in the process. You're like, wow, yeah. I really can change the outcome The outcome of things that are going pear-shaped as long as you pick it up. I mean, obviously, you get hit by a bus, you're not going to see it coming. You can't yeah. change the outcome. But as so, long as you can see the bus coming, you can change the outcome. So when she's fallen through and you said, so use it on ice, and she's fallen through and that weight on that has started to crack and you've seen the crack. This is like a movie. This is a oh, movie mate. all over. Like, yeah, it was crazy. It was. It and, was. And so, how did she get it? She just climbed out and that, and spread a weight enough to not crack that ice. Well, or like the funny, she... the funny thing is, the day before had been a storm day, so we spent the whole day in a hut going through the theory. And and she said, "Listen, if your partner goes in, you build a snow anchor, take your skis off. So we're on skis. Yeah, dig a slot behind your ass." put the sleigh on the ski on it and then take a prusik loop which is yeah. like a loop of yeah right isolate connect that to the main line and then do the same on the other so then you've got two ice anchors connected yeah, two anchor points. and then at that point you can then come out of the system so you gently lengthen your connection to the mid rope and then when all the weight of the fallen comrade is on the two ice anchors then you are independent of the system and then you can shimmy forward and try and help her out of the hole. So whilst she was trying to get herself sorted in the hole, get her skis off, time to a prusik, hang them, get a pack off, hang them, and then get some ice screws into the wall that she could try and connect and stop herself falling further, in the back of her mind, she's freaking out, thinking, this guy's going to panic and cut me, and then I'm dead. And no one will know, other than the fact that it's a cut rope. And I'm, it was the furthest thing from my mind. I'm, yeah, because it, it's like for, for you, you've got this confidence in her because she, she has all this training, she has all the know-how, and for you being the trainee, but it was also a moment for you to prove yourself. Well, that was it. I, and then so I crawl forward and she was feeling me connected to the rope while I was moving and holding it. But as soon as she went on ice anchors, there was no vibration coming down the rope. I got halfway to the crevasse opening on my guts and she's yelled out, you effing better not have disconnected from that rope. And then I said, oh, why? She said, because oh, I don't trust your anchors. Oh. And um, so at that point, she's totally reliant on two anchors that I've built, the first anchors I've ever built in my life. Yeah. And then I realised, yeah, she's probably right. I've, I'm not really a pro anchor builder. Let's let's shimmy on back. So I yelled down, lied at her, and said, um, no, 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 I'm still connected, and then reconnected to the system, 
got my ass in and then she's connected to me again. She relaxed and then she's swearing her head off. And I remember yelling back at her going, Lydia, if you're, um, if you're going to die, let's die with some dignity. And then she's yelled back, um, yeah, that's all right for you. You're not the one in the effing hole. So we're having this hilarious conversation. And, yeah. But uh, she can't see the crack that I'm seeing forming <gasps> between us. And uh, anyway, it took an hour and 20 minutes for her to get herself out. You're kidding. What was the and, suspense from that hour and 20 minutes? Oh, it's horrendous. And your ass is going numb. And um, the whole time you're just going, man, this whole thing could just go. So actually, what temperature are you in at this stage? It's not that cold. Like it's probably minus seven. Yeah, but still with all the gear and sitting there, like yeah, it, minus, as still. soon as you stop and sit there. Like it was for us when we were in the Arctic, even with all the gear on when we were surfing, you're just checking the surf. You get out of the car, go check a place. As soon as you stand there just watching it, five minutes, you're like... Yeah, like, And you're sitting there for an hour and 20 minutes. Well, she... God. Self out. Anyway, the funny thing was she she got out and then um, as she gets up, I go, Lydia, we've got to move because she's lying next to the hole just catching her breath. And she goes, can't move. And I said, have a look under your right arm. And she looks under her right arm, see this crack, and then you can see her following it all the way to me. And she's gone, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then I said, yep, let's move. So we shimmied up the slope to get away from this crack. Eventually we get off um, off that area and got picked up by a heli and we get out. That night we're in Wanaka and um, she has a beer there. And I'm looking at her with the beer and she said, you know, Jeff, when I first met you, I thought you were going to Antarctica to die um, because you're so green. You're really green. Uh, but watching you perform today, you're going to smash this. Do you find that even being green, that people just, especially by who you are and like the, the will that you have, do, do you find that people are just happy to help you? Like yeah, I think to... I think you know you got to you got to enter these things with a degree of humility and go, hey, mm. listen, I may not be up for this, but I'm up for the training. And then if at the end of the training you look at me and say you're a liability, I'm happy to take that on the chin. Well, you got to put your ego aside. You have to. You got to put your ego aside for anything like this. And every step of the training, when people first met me, they're like, look at this guy with his boom sled. What the hell? Um, but then two weeks later dropping you off at the airport to go home. They're like, hey, full respect. Yeah. Um, Do you, just one quick question. When you've got that, um, when you rope to each other, I, I always wonder about, so she's fallen through. What about the shock load on you? If you're the first initial um, first initial anchor point to catch her, like I would be afraid that that's going to suddenly drag me and then we're both going to slide over the ice together. Well, I, I, it's always weird because you kind of think, She's falling vertically and then the rope is providing friction as it's cutting through the ice wall. And we've put a knot, like a fist knot, every two metres. So that fist knot blocks and then it pops, blocks and then it pops. And that does slow the descent. Yeah. But this happens so fast. And, and it, we'd had an avalanche on the left of us just the millisecond before she fell through. So I was looking at the avalanche going, crap, I hope that's not going to hit us. It was well below us, so it was fine. And just as I realized, hey, we're safe from that, next minute I'm on my side getting pulled, and I just thought it was a practical joke. And then I, t- I roll and get my feet under me 
jam their ice axe in and she's gone. She's nowhere to be seen. So, God, and this is all your training. So when you come, came home from that, it especially experienced someone else so close to death, someone with so much experience, did that really put it at home to you? Like yeah, you know, you're getting I, yourself into? Exactly, because you're kind of going, hang on, this is arguably one of the best female alpinists in the world and she nearly came to grief what the hell am i doing going to one of the longest glacial fields in the world uh solo at the bottom of the earth i I don't have a place here yeah so then i think you you go back and you sit down and go okay what are my reasons for being there if it were just to chase a record or or just for shits and gigs you wouldn't do it but um because I've gone, okay, I have trained with the best in the world. I've uplinked. I feel like my skill sets are there now, Um, my navigation, my kiting. And the the big thing that saved me was I'd spent probably, to that point, I'd probably covered more of the planet than anyone else on kites. Yeah. Uh, And now, you know, that would be easily true. Over ocean, sand and ice, there'd be no one who's covered more distance. So you're a kiteboarder and... Is that how so the person that had done the initial crossing um, that tra- that mentored you, and he did he cross it using a kite? Yeah, so he back then he's a phenomenal skier. Like Borge would would kill me in terms of Nordic skiing and skiing. He's a machine, but he's added kites as an afterthought. So back then it was like a parachute yeah. kite. You just put a hang onto a bar and the thing would pull you downwind. Uh, he picked his route, so it was all downwind sailing, and he could just hang on to the bar. Yeah. Um, whereas I picked a route where it was a lot of technical flying, and it was um, about 1,500 kilometres longer than Borges' route. So you, you did this challenge with a kite. So yeah. So it's crossing with a sled and a kite, and the kite's going to pull you across Antarctica. Yeah. Now, yeah. had you skied much before? Uh, I learned to ski the year before. So all so okay. So you've done the opposite of him. He's yeah. the skier and learnt the kite, and you're the kiteboarder and you've learnt the ski. Yeah. So that yeah. was the key because I like you can. My kite flying got me distance. Yeah. So while Faisal was in his tent going, "There's no wind out here," I was outside and I saw a bird go over at speed, an Arctic turn. Those little white turns you see yeah. up in the Arctic. I saw it fly over and it wasn't moving its wings, and I'm thinking. What the hell's wind up? There's wind up high. So yeah. I got two kites, took the strings off one and added it to the second one, and then ran backwards to get that kite up. And at 50 meters, there was no air. 60 meters, no air. At 80 meters, it hit this wind flow that ripped me onto my face. And I got pulled past the tent and out of sight before I could get the kite out of con- in control. So then I realised on really calm, still days in Antarctica, that cold air that you get come out of your fridge and you feel it on your feet, it just sits there and these weather systems slip over the top. And it's only when it gets over about 10 knots that it mixes that cold air up and you feel it at ground level. Do you reckon that was a big factor into your record, world record, just by realising that? Absolutely. That Arctic turn was the winner. So you okay? So you've done all these. So you've done these mini expeditions. In saying mini, these are big expeditions still. Two week um, training expeditions, you know, at times and everything. And then, so what are you? Are you? Are you? I'm guessing you pulled your diet up. I'm guessing you're doing gym training, and just like what? What about mental training? Realizing like the mental state. Do you reckon training mentally is just something that 
you've done your whole life these extreme situations so you had that there or did you have to mentally prepare as well oh i think um the mental stuff comes gradually like you can't like if i threw someone from suburbia into a night solo any in any polar environment it would scare the shit out of them yeah they'd they'd, um just not do well so you've got to work your way up to it but then i think um it's also that whole stepping into the octagon thing you know the ufc fighter who's he's won a couple of rounds had a few knockouts um he knows the opponent is beaten him before you kind of go in with a bit of confidence not arrogance you could never go into antarctica or the arctic uh, arrogant because it'll slap you down yeah i've had a few people say to me uh, they, they get confused and think it's your ego they don't you, they don't understand that you can't have an ego out there no. and that's the humbling thing and that's that's a big thing of why i do it because it's such a growing thing because you're out there without you can't have an ego out there no. and just no. it's humbling and it really puts you in your place in a way well see like if i look at um guys i've watched out there who've really got injured or really got hurt and i think their ego was writing checks that their ability couldn't sort of cash or they just didn't listen to their body enough yeah um so i think the mental side is is very hard to train you either have it or you haven't to a degree yeah um but here's the thing your progression of your dreams has got to be sensible like you know, as a business person, you don't dream on building a $50 million company as your first company. You, you build a half a million dollar company and then you you develop the strength and the tenacity for that. And then um, you... Well, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's the old saying. It's the, it's the road to success. It's like your, your goal is the road to achievement, keeping achievement. It's like setting things that are achievable rather than just going one big thing and you keep your mind in check doing that because you're constantly in a state of achievement. Yeah, you just, just work dream to dream. So I think if you're if you're stepping that up, but, you know, there is always a stretch. Yeah. Like it was a massive stretch. I remember the feeling of the Aleutian, the Russian transport, leaving me at Novoluskaya Station in Russian Antarctica. The, the back of the plane comes up. They turn, they boost the engines, and then thirty seconds later, it's silence. Is this where you where you started? Yeah, when they so let's when get they leave you. Let's get into that. Um, oh, I'm so I, so you, I'm just so excited to hear this because it's like even right now I'm like I keep picturing everything you're saying and it's making me on edge. I'm, and I'm drinking this coffee. <laughs> and I'm getting coffee anxiety, thinking of like that up. crack through the ice, like, <laughs> and then and because I've seen parts of your trip, so you've you've done all this. Um, you've done all this training and everything you've got the backing you've got the um you're doing it for a reason you've got the support from the family and so d-day comes in how did how did that so that's the russians dropping you off yeah so the russians drop you off and and unbeknownst to me there were 10 guys on that plane um who were working in a a place called white desert which is a high-end tourist destination that flies people out of London and they can have an Antarctic experience and then get picked up the week later. So Nova Sky is a runway and then all these vehicles come and pick people up and then they disappear and then suddenly I was left alone, the plane takes off and there's a French explorer and me, nine of the guys on the plane, because they had a betting syndicate, who's going to make it across? Nine of them bet for the Frenchman and one of them bet for me. 
And the, the only guy that bet for me was the guy that gave me a balloon, a pink balloon, and said, listen, my, I see your boobs, lad. I, I, I've heard about you. I know what you're doing. I, I love what you're trying to do. I've got a friend in the Cape Town hospital dying of breast cancer. Her name's Lottie. I've written a name on the balloon. When you get to the South Pole, can you blow the balloon up, say a prayer for Lottie and let it go? And I thought, mate, the Antarctic Division would probably have a conniption if I left a balloon down there. So yeah. I just carried it. I put it, I zipped it up in my pocket, forgot about it. And then I actually found it at the South Pole and blew it up, thought of Lottie, and then popped it back in my pocket. But the only reason he bet for me was because of that connection. Yeah. And the interesting thing is 17 days later, the Frenchman's done. He's finished. He's out of there, gets airlifted out and home. And by then I was already halfway to had the you, South Had Pole. you heard about this? Did you, So... Okay, so to do a trek like this, you've got all your gear, you've got it in your sled. Um, are you being tracked? You've got to have communication with someone. Um, yeah, you're tracked every 10 minutes, basically, so they know where you are. Is that just through a GPS tracker? Just through a GPS tracker. And then every night at 7 o'clock, you ring the Russians on your SAF phone and say, hey, I'm code green, I'm happy to continue tomorrow, this is my position, and yeah. then they log it down. Or you could go, listen, I'm code orange, which is I've got serious issues. I need to make a decision overnight whether you pick me up, but just have me on standby. And then code red is I've just snapped my femur. Come yeah. and pick me up. Yeah. Um, so this is all the training. Yeah. So like, I think the whole, like you kind of got to understand the atmosphere there. Like it's not. I don't know, every other journey, you meet someone on the edge of the wilderness and they're really stoked for you to be there. You know, wow, this thing you're doing is amazing. You look well prepared. Here's a slap on the back, handshake, away you go. Antarctica has this feel of everyone who's there doesn't want anybody else there. They're either scientists and they don't want privateers or adventurers in there or they're, they're, they're hard men running a runway or keeping an ice road open and they don't want people there so you land and you have this feeling of wow no one's really friendly nobody wants me here um i'm an inconvenience and then suddenly you're alone yeah so you don't have this warm kind of send-off and do you feel like that too like you're an inconvenience like you're doing something and putting yourself at risk where other people would be at risk to come to come help you out too and they're yeah, although with the Russians, they love, like if someone's in trouble and they've got to scramble, they love, that that excites them because yeah. the rest of the day is pretty boring. Um, so they they don't feel like that. But, you know, you go into a hut, you sign your name, the guy pours you a vodka and goes, salute, and then you slam a vodka down and then he slaps you on their back and then you're out. And then you set your tent. By then the plane takes off and you're in your tent by yourself for the first night. So the first night you, you didn't try and travel, you just literally got dropped off camping. Yeah, I think the timing, I can't remember the timing, but it was about 11 o'clock at night by the time I got my fuel off the Russians and then they'd had a storm come through that had just blasted their camp. What would but, you call this camp, like a base camp? What would you call yeah, it? Yeah, imagine, like, imagine a whole bunch of shipping containers just plonked on the ice and then an ice runway a kilometre long in the distance, and that's it. And it's just the white desert otherwise. And then these incredible mountains of Queen Maud land in the distance, which are one of the only mountains in the world that haven't had an ice age go over them and smooth them. So 
the rock is jagged. It looks like the Towers of Mordor yeah. in, in there. And um, they're in the distance and you have this incredible feeling of the plateau behind them. Yeah. And is this 24-hour uh, sunlight? Yeah, 24-hour sunlight. So you're, you're, so you're the Mr. Summer down there. And I've had this Frenchman and he's got a comment about everything. So I'm pulling my skis out. Oh, you took those skis. Uh, oh, oh you got that question. pole. Everything he's saying, I'm questioning my gear and he's looking at me. That's the worst going, thing to do to someone. Oh, it's horrendous. And I think it was gameplay at this point. He was trying to get it because we were both going for the third guy to cross solo unsupported. And we weren't mates at the time. We'd only really just met. We're now firm buddies. Um, but I remember going, I've got to get away from this guy. So I hauled the sled about half a K and then across the runway and set up on the other side of the runway. And I, I didn't see him again um, well, for years, basically, because yeah. he, he was close to me at times, but we never met on the ice. And then uh, he got extracted. I crossed and then I, the next time I saw him was in Norway. Was that because later. you planned different routes to break the record? Like obviously it's just not one just straight line or you, you no. know, like, oh, I'm going to go around these mountains, I'll go through this glacier kind of thing. It's like which Pretty route? sad. Like he, we both planned to walk up the Somo Becken, so we both planned to cross the crevasse field, but um, the first storm slammed us both and then I got moving and he followed me into the crevasse field. He was following my tracks and then I got a phone call that night and he said, this is terrifying. I, how are you managing the mental stress in here? And I said, mate, it's horrible. By then I was about a third of the way in. And then he followed me for a second day. The next night I spoke to him on the phone and he said, man, this is crazy. I don't know whether you just don't realize how dangerous this is. I don't know whether you're naive, but this is crazy. You could die in here at any moment. And I said, yeah, I'm aware of that. But I'm trying to stay safe by so I'm now halfway across. I'm not going to turn back. So he said, listen, I'm done. I'm turning back out. So he turned out, followed his tracks out, and got a vehicle to pick him up. So the minute he picked up a vehicle, I'm like, okay, the race is off. I'm no longer racing anyone. He's just disqualified himself from unsupported status. But he's now going to get lifted to the top of the plateau. And whilst he was out of the race for unsupported, he was still ahead of me. So he was still trying to cross, but he just he just kind of dropped for the record. He so he had a bit of a fritz out in the crevasse field, and, and that was kind of a moment where I'm going, hey, and this guy is way more experienced than me. He's trained with the Norwegians for 11 years. He's a so-called mountaineer, and he's freaking out. What Am I totally misguided in thinking that I'm managing the risk in here? Uh, but no, I said, no, listen, I'm probing every step. I feel like I'm being as safe as I can. So probing's with a, with a long stick that you can push out and you can probe the, the, the snow and see the, the ice pack or see yeah. where the solid ice is. And, and if you feel solid ice, you keep walking. If you feel air, like a pocket of air, yeah. then you back off and find another way. And, you know, it could take you two hours to cover 100 metres. Yeah. Doing so that. how often were you probing? Oh, so, like every step. Every step. Every yeah. step. So... It took 14 days to do 200 kilometers. So you reckon, so this guy um, has basically, he's realized a risk. He's calling you at night via sat phone to reiterate. Do you reckon it, uh, that's, 
what do you reckon was happening in his mind? Like, do you reckon he was like trying to warn you, or like it was too scared? Did he actually reckon the risk was too high for himself, like that calculated risk? Or and for you yourself, do you reckon it was a naive thing, not seeing as much as 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 he was? Well, like, I declare, like I knew it was really dangerous because you, like one night, I stepped out of the. I thought I was on safe ice, and I stepped out of the tent, grabbed the shovel, took a big chunk of snow. And it kind of popped, made an unusual sound when I pulled the snow up to go back into the tent. And then about the size of the shovel was a big blue hole. And I realised where I was standing was on good ice, but I had camped on almost like the bow of a ship. And when I got the probe out, where I'd taken the ice from was a massive crevasse, like probably three, four hundred metres deep. And I probed all the way around the front of the tent and it was all blue space. But it, I was so tired and done in that I realised, okay, to move and find a safer camp, it's too dangerous. But I, there's no way of knowing the shape of the ice under you. I, am I on a, on a big isthmus of hard ice that's going to snap off in the night and I fall into this Q1 size hole? Or... Am I on beautiful safe heights that could be here in a hundred years? You, you just don't know. So you make a calculated risk and go, well, I feel like I'm too tired to make a good decision, so I'm going to stay put. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of the rational thought that you're constantly questioning. And when you have another explorer in the same predicament saying, "I'm done. This is too dangerous," then it really plays with your mind. Yeah. You're like. Am I being naive and am I going to die tomorrow or am I managing my risk? And I'm halfway through now. I've managed to get halfway through safely. So can um, you sleep? Can you sleep at night? Like how, how's your adrenaline? Like you're crossing, you're so isolated yourself so much. Like you're in one of the rawest, if not the rawest place on the planet with one of the highest risks that you could you can have like your life is literally every step that you're taking can literally be the last step of your life yeah like, that, that you is a horrible scared? feeling are you like are you shaking are you scared or are you no, literally just you're... like trying to stay calm like what's happening in your mind in those moments to get you through that you're trying to manage your stress levels recognizing that when you're stressed you make bad decisions so you're trying to control your heart rate um not sweat control your you know the warmth of your clothing and everything and then uh you're just probing and it, it becomes a routine where it's a bit like crossing a minefield you're yeah. you're basically one step away from stepping on something but as long as you're probing every step and not getting complacent and that was the thing i think just being absolutely diligent in yeah checking every step and then suddenly you'd get to these areas which were magic where the top layer of snow would have blown off and the blue ice was visible, and you could see every crack. So you didn't have to probe, but you'd switch to, switch to crampons because yeah. your skis were yeah, useless. Yeah. And you're walking through blue ice for a couple of hours where every crack's visible. So the ones that you can cross are awesome, and then the big ones you can see are basically filled in with snow, but the, the blue edges are visible, so you yeah. walk along them until they join with safe ice across. And that's glorious. You make good mileage. The sled's pulling easily because it's really slippery. And then suddenly you're back onto pure white ice or white snow. And all the crevasses are hidden again. And because you've seen it, you realize, A, the patterning, you can kind of get a rhythm as to where the cracks are. 
But you also realise, man, I'm not imagining this. This is deadly. Yeah. Were you cold doing this? Um, yeah, when you stop moving. The minute you stop moving, you throw down yeah. jacket on. Are you conscious of um, conscious of your sweat levels? Yeah, the whole Matty Manette drums into you. You sweat, you die because yeah. you've just got to – because there's no drying room, you've got to vent. The minute you start sweating, you've got to open everything up and get that moisture away from your clothing because you, your clothing – would gradually lose its thermal properties if you don't look after it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, managing your sweat's key. And just that moisture freezing on you. That, that, remember that was drummed into me is like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's such a hard cardio thing. And you, there was times where I was dripping in sweat and you're, and you're thinking like, yeah, it's just silly. I, I always had a spare change of clothes, but it's just like that sweat will freeze on you and then suddenly hypothermia is going to set in so quick. But... um. Did you feel that your fitness level, that your training, like in that first stage, did you question yourself at all? Obviously, you'd question yourself from this other guy, but as in like your fitness level, um, did you... Not really. Were you thrown I mean, in the deep end at all? Basically, did you suddenly get to a point where you're like in that first bit crossing the crevasse where you're like, what the fuck am I doing? I can't do this. Did you... How's the mind? Yeah, I, I think the biggest gameplay there was realizing how heavy the sled was because the sled was... 180 kilos and i was struggling to get it to move on the flat and then once you got onto a, an upslope and this glacier rose from sea level to 9,000 feet above sea level over 200k so there were sections of it that were really steep and i would just have to empty the sled of about half of the gear set a track go forward and then chuck all that gear out bring the sled back empty put the gear back in so I'd split loads. So to cover a kilometre, I'd cover three. But it's also like crossing a minefield three times. You're going once up, once back, once again. So your chance of stepping through something and making a mistake is tripled. Yeah. Um, and that's playing with your mind. And I think of all of the adventures, you know, that 200 kilometres was the most stressful. I don't think I've ever felt sustained stress like walking solo into the same OVAC. And, and that's why this journey, I'm like, screw it, I'm not, I'm not going to put myself through it again. I'll start at the top. So we're getting trucks around the glacier and I'll start my my distance counter at the top. I just wouldn't, I'm shortchanging myself with 200 kilometres, but, mate, you only do that sort of thing once. Like, yeah. you're really inviting death to try and do it again. Like, you realise the stress level. Yeah. So. How many, that 200 kilometres, how many days did that take you to cross it? So it's 14, I got to the top on the 14th day. And yeah. funny, funny story here. Um, Faisal had, by the time they got him out and got a truck to him, moved him to the top and then he camped for a few days waiting for me to, to get there. And he said, hey, this is my latitude and longitude come and say hi on your way past and by then i'd got my kind of solo mindset about the 10 days you start feeling really lonely and then suddenly you pop through this window where you don't feel lonely anymore you start to enjoy your own company and you start feeling mentally strong for the first time and i thought i don't really want to meet someone and reset the clock yeah and then as I get to the top of the Somovec and I managed to get kites up, so the last 50, 60K was all kite-powered and I just had to trust that if I was moving fast, I could get over the top of the crevasses before they collapsed and that worked because this, 
the storm was coming in. When we were in the aircraft in the Aleutian, Faisal was yelling at me going, hey, have you got any movies? And over the noise of the aircraft, I could barely hear him. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, movies for the storms. You need movies. And I said, oh, yeah, I've got about three or four. And he said, three or four. What, on your phone, to play on your yeah, phone? on a hard drive, to play on a laptop. So you took a laptop with you on your, yeah. I suppose, because you filmed this, didn't you? Yeah, for the film editing and, and your daily blogs and yeah, all of that. So he said, oh, listen, give me a hard drive. So he dumped a heap of movies on and then um, he's gone. How are you charging? It's all solar. Oh, all so you solar. had solar and yeah. so you'd put solar on top of the sled while you were? Nah, because the sleds often flip and will just ruin the solar. So you tend to just set it up at night. So while you're sleeping, it's filling the battery bank. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's like, um, well, hey, I've given you some movies. And then he's yelling, um, do you want porno? And I've gone, what? And at the top of his voice, all these scientists are starting to look at us in the aircraft. He's going, do you want porno? And I'm going, no, no, I don't want any porno movies. Just last thing I'll be looking at in Antarctica. And then he's looking at me really strange and he goes, oh, how do you deal with stress? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, in France, if we get stressed, we masturbate. And I'm like, really? Man, I've never heard of that. No Australian that I know deals with stress by masturbating. Yeah, right. And he's looking at me, no, no, it's effective. And I'm like, ah, mate, I'll deal with it in my own way, thanks. Anyway, 14 days later, I'm coming up to the top of the glacier and I see his tent and it's starting to get hammered because these squalls are coming through. I've got a storm kite up and I'm making my way towards him. And then I start thinking, man, what if he's stressed? Yeah. He's in there jerking off. The last thing I need to do is knock on a tent. I finally got my solo mindset sorted and there's a stressed Frenchman in there. Yeah, wow. So I ended up Bastard. bearing away <laughs> bearing away and, and didn't see a human for forty one days. Yeah. So uh but we, we have a joke now. I go, Man, I'm so glad I didn't knock on the tent. You could have been really stressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doing doing crazy stuff. Uh but yeah. Different approach to stress. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. So, so take us through a day. Like, um, so you get a, so the glacier that was crossing those crevasses, that was the highest stressed. And that's what you started with. So you've started 14 days of just high stress. Yeah. Yeah. And I think by the time I got to the, the glacial ice of the plateau, which now it's from there, it's about two and a half thousand kilometers to the pole. You are battle hardened. Like you're like, nothing can be more stressful than that. So in a way, as a game plan, it kind of worked out perfect because you started with the hardest thing. Yeah. And then after that, it's like, well, if I can get through that, I can get through anything. Well, and mentally I'm going, okay, my sled's only going to get lighter each day. I burn fuel and eat food. I've been through the most brutal storm Antarctica's had in 50 years. I've survived. I've managed to Take us to through that through storm, because that. that storm was like the third or fourth day. Yeah, it was like literally 30 kilometres into the journey. And I think the, the thing with the storm is uh, I got an email from Mark De Kaiser, who's my lucky rabbit's foot. He's my weather guy. So he's just a IT freak that sits in an office in Belgium and he predicts my weather down to 15 minutes. So I get an email, it'll say, listen, at 0900, it's going to be calm, have breakfast by 0930, get your kite set, by 0945, you'll get three knots from the southwest. And 
that's how accurate he is. He's a freak. So I wouldn't do a journey without him. When when he got married, we were in Greenland. I said, I can't do this journey. You're going to have to give me weather reports on your honeymoon. Oh, you're So kidding. he was sending me weather reports from his honeymoon. You arsehole. I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm tough. Right? <laughs> you need to just send me one email a day. So this weather event being so big, starting your journey, they didn't see it coming days in? Yeah, they, they could see it coming when we left because – I was meant to leave the week earlier. Um, Prince Charles was held back. I was held back. I got through in a two-day weather window, and they said, listen, move as fast as you can, get away from the coast, and you might be okay. Anyway, when we got to Nova the Sky, the, the, the camp had demountables rolled over onto their roof. There were shipping containers that were 50 metres from where they were meant to be, and I'd never seen wind like that. I'm like... What the hell? There's wind down here that moves to mountables and rolls shipping containers, and I'm pretending to survive it in a tent. Yeah, I need to get away from the coast. So there was this mad urgency to pull and get away from the coast. But I got thirty k in, and Mark sent an email saying, um, "You need to stand. The storm's coming faster, and it's bigger than anything I've seen. Um, you may not survive this." You're kidding me. And I'm like, what? What do you mean may not survive? And he said, this is a killer storm. You, you, if you were in a building, it would take the roof off and flatten the walls. You're in a tent and it's going to get down to minus 47 air temp. Um, 200 kilometer hour winds. Had you trained for this? No. Just, no. Just, I mean, have you trained in, for in such theory, an extremity? Yeah, I mean, I'd had a savage storm in the Sahara that rolled a cameraman and his tent into the bush we we had like cyclone i sailed in front of cyclone pierre across the coral sea we did 50 grand worth of damage to the sailboat we were in you know but the boat held i had three storms in the arctic and so i kind of felt like i i know storms like yeah we'll build a wall and i'll survive it but nothing prepared me for this like it was imagine you're trying to camp in front of a 747 with its engines on full blast and you know the the intensity of the scream of the wind is just rising hourly um the air feels like people are throwing bricks at you you're building this wall you can't see because you go outside and the goggles are getting blown off your face there's spindrift you're basically fumbling around like a blind man trying to dig bricks to fortify this wall and you know if the so wall you, fails. You, you you make a safety wall out of ice blocks i'm guessing yeah and then so, you put your tent behind it or so the cool thing was the boobs acted like a spoiler on a car so i'd kind of put them nipples facing me kevlar and you imagine the breasts would scoop the wind up yeah and then i'd build the sled into the wall and then behind the sled build another wall and that wall, like the tent's probably only a metre and a half off the ground and you're building this wall sort of to two to three metres to try and get the wind to get pushed over. But then the problem is the wind will spiral on the backside of the wall and drop all of its snow on the tent. Yeah. So you're getting the whole of Antarctica's snow dumped on the tent hourly. And for 36 hours, the first 36 so hours of like- the storm, I couldn't get a stove on. I couldn't melt water. I couldn't eat. Couldn't drink. Even in the tent. Couldn't. It was impossible to light a match. So, so basically, um, shit. So there's pros and cons to this. So, like, you're building a wall, 
So you've 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 worked out well. They've told you which which way the storm's coming, what the 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 dominant direction of the wind is, right? So then you've built one solid wall as like your first means of defense with the boobs in it, with the, your sled in it. Then you've yeah. done another wall, so the wind will hit that and funnel up. Whatever leftover wind hits the second wall, and then you have your tent. But because you have those walls, and that's what mountains are, it's like where the snow dumps it isn't on the windward side; it's on the Backwards on the lee, lee side, so I was like, that's where the snow falls. So basically, all that snow and that if that storm's coming fast, that's just dumping right on your tent. So then, you're not. I'm guessing as well that you'd have to have a game plan that that wall, like your life depends on that wall. A hundred percent. And then, I mean, the difficulty here is at. I knew the tent was rated to eighty knots, so I was outside with the wind gauge, going, "Man, we're at sixty knots. I can't imagine." the wind getting stronger than this and then an hour later i go out and it's 64 knots how's the tent pegged down is it literally just pegged down into the snow it's pegged down but you dig your your slots so instead of putting the peg in like sharp bit facing down it's lying on its side and it's buried down about a foot yeah and then you're shoveling snow all around the edge so that no air can get under it and lift the tent up so when you're out and then i've rung um Eric Phillips, who is one of my mentors and one of my uplinks in Tasmania, and he could hear the scream of the wind. He said, holy crap, where are you? And I said, man, I'm in this storm. They're calling it the worst storm to hit Antarctica in the summer in 50 years. And he goes, well, man, that's bad luck. What's it doing? And I said, well, we're about 64 knots. Um, Air temp's minus 30, and it's dropping. And uh, being honest with you, I'm scared witless. And he said, well, listen, tell me what you've done. And I, I walked him through everything. I said, honestly, you've, you've done everything you can, but the one thing you have to do is ring your wife and be honest with her. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the reality is if that tent breaches, you've got a survival time of about four hours. And without a tent around you, you're not going to be able to make a phone call. Um, no one can come and save you on foot. No one can save you in a vehicle. No aircraft can fly to you. You are isolated. This is You're it. in the middle of Antarctica. The biggest storm hit in 15 years, and this, and you're in a tent with two walls blocking this wind, and it would be white out. Out. I'm guessing, complete, like, what's complete. the visibility? Like, it'd just oh, be like end of your hand. Yeah. End your hand. So yeah. there is no way, no way in hell anyone could get to you. Because even anyone trying to get to you is a suicide mission at this point. Yeah, you're, you're going to die. Like, you can't. So in the Russian base 30 kilometres away, they are screwing cables into the ice to try and stop the demountables flying away. So, and no aircrafts were, you know, within days of getting there. So um, it was full on. And then he said, listen, ring your wife. So I rang Sarah and said, um, sweetheart, this could be one adventure too far. I think I'm, I might have pushed too hard this time. Um, and how many, this is the third day in? Four. Third day in. So we're barely settled in yet. And, uh, you know, I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but this is just bad luck. I, I never expected to meet a weather event like this. This is more terrifying than anything we've ever been through. It's worse than the cyclone, worse than the sandstorms, worse than the Arctic. This is like all of them combined. And she could hear the wind screaming. Imagine a thousand cats 
screaming at the same time and she was silent for a bit and then I'd said, listen, I don't know that I'm going to make it home. And um, she was quiet and then... How was that for you saying that? Oh, actually being honest with your with your wife like that like how did that feel for you probably the worst phone call i've ever had to make because it kind of felt a like an admission of defeat yeah but also just being real and going well this could be our last conversation and the, the realizing the cost of adventuring on your family you know that's extreme stress and most of it's not like that, but there are times when there is a cost, and this is one of those times. And Sarah came back absolutely enraged and said, you know, how dare you talk of death and giving up after all you've put us through? You know, you put us through training in Norway, you put us through training uh, in the Arctic Circle, you know, put us through, you're nearly dying on the Tasman Glacier with Lydia Brady, and here you are letting a mere storm get in your way. Get your boots on, get outside, and work as hard as you can to make sure you come home to me. And then she hung up. Fuck, what a woman. And what a, That would have been... what a, Because most people in that situation, and I was expecting you to say she just broke down and started crying, but to, and which is probably, I'm guessing, what she wanted to do. Yeah, well, but she, she probably knows you so much that she realised that she had to give you a kick in the in the guts, yeah. like a kick in the in the ass, and say... And it was a fall. Like, I remember I hung up and just burst into tears, and then she hung up and burst into tears. So on the other side of the, you know, the globe, we're both crying and i'm crying because i think that's it but then i realize hey i'm not dead yet yeah this thing hasn't killed me yet let's work really hard so let's get the basically so the mongrel comes out and i literally for the next 36 hours every hour i was out building bricks and every time i got out i was amazed at how decimated the wall was because it was just like firing a sandblaster at ice bricks um, you could watch the bricks disappear in front of your eyes because the wind was just screwing with it and ripping chunks off it. And then the back of the tent, I, if I dozed off, I could feel my feet getting trapped because the weight of the ice and snow landing was just on landing on it. And you'd be shoveling tons of snow every hour and aware that, you know, death by carbon monoxide poisoning was a possibility because all the events are icing up. You're constantly having to make sure your vents are open and, you know, the wind topped at about 78 knots. And at 78 knots, I'm thinking, this thing's going to go to 100. Yeah, what was the tent doing? Is it just like... It's just like whip cracking, like the noise of the canvas. And I'm thinking, I cannot believe this canvas is copping this without tearing because it's just whip cracking, whack, 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 just going crazy. And at any point in time, I'm looking for needle holes in the, in the fabric. Going, one of these, you know, if, if it tears, it's just going to shred. So you're completely in survival mode. You've, yeah. you've, do you, in, at this point in time, do you even have a moment to even think about your family? Or has it just gone past that, that it's literally to a point where you've got to be so strategic, so strong with your mind to just keep you going, get out, do those um like work on that wall what's it like stepping outside in that wind like 
because I, I can imagine that could just knock you over. Well, uh, the biggest stress for me is every time I opened the tent door, the whole the whole tent would blow out because there's so much wind coming through the door. I'm thinking every time I open this door, that's when I think that's when I think it's going to rip. And just getting the zip shut was a nightmare. And you stick your head out, and it's like sticking your head out of a train doing 200 kilometers an hour because at that point the wind's close to 200 kilometers an hour and you're having to crawl because you can't stand you're crawling to the wall and if you step out from behind the wall it knocks you over so you're crawling to the wall and then just feeling with your shovel for firm ice cutting bricks shuffling those bricks over putting them up and my sort of goal was just to try and put a row of bricks on every hour yeah. And that went on for 36 hours. And I'm thinking, man, this storm is going to outlast me. I can't. I could feel myself really fatiguing. Yeah. And then suddenly the wind drops from 78 knots to 72. And then an hour later it's at 68. And you're thinking, man, this thing might be petering out. And then at the 36-hour mark I let myself sleep for four hours. And then at about the 40-hour mark got the first stove on had a hot meal, and suddenly your world starts to open up and you think, man, I'm going to survive this thing. Yeah. So phone call home then to Sarah to to thank her for one, but also to say, hey, I'm going to live to fight another day. Oh, my God. I just I just was just biting my fingers so hard with that. Oh, my God. So just yeah. picturing that whole thing. Like, um, did, I, did you I, ever feel like it beat you? Did you ever feel like yeah. you were sitting there because... You you're not wouldn't be able to get much sleep because you're sitting there watching this tent, thinking any moment, any moment you're that's it, you're done, and going on for thirty six hours. Because I, I I'm assuming, I, did you feel like you're like okay, one more hour? One, were you just taking it like hour by hour, like brick by brick? Yeah, pretty much. Like I, I mean, I thought I, I don't know how long I can do this, and even just recounting it, it's quite emotionally draining because you you go back into the depths of that despair yeah. where you're like, you know, I elected to put myself into, into this. Yeah. I, I chose, I chose this pain, but I chose it when I didn't realize that weather events like this happen on planet yeah. earth. And, you know, now when I look back, I go in my lifetime, I don't think I'll ever meet a weather event like that again. I mean, it would be like getting hit by lightning 50 times. And you're yeah. out there in the rawness of it. And I, I don't um, – I, I never imagined wind could move like this. Yeah. You know, it, it would be like the equivalent of having a tornado go over the top of you, yeah. but, but you're stuck in it for a day and a half. Yeah. Um, I, that was just – in Iceland, I, that was a realisation. I never knew wind – I never knew weather like that existed. And I, it, it, it wouldn't have even compared to this storm – um, how wild that is but some of the weather like the weather in these places and the rawness of it it's it's like it makes me look at the cyclones that we have here in queensland like nothing because any every day in in the arctic was like that yeah. it was a, every day it was a category five cyclone that tears houses apart here and that's just what they live in yeah and it just it's so wild and their their respect for the wilderness is so great because they're seeing these things roll through whereas in our environments, we don't tend to get the violence no. that they get. And But having seen it once, you kind of go, it does factor in all my planning now. Like I go, 
you know, when we run polar survival courses, the number one thing we do is this is how you live through a killer storm. And, you know, this last two weeks, we've just come out of New Zealand. We had four bloody blizzards in 13 days, nothing like. But the wind strength still got over 100k an hour, which when you're sleeping on a mountaintop is significant. You don't sleep too well. Yeah. Uh, but that storm survival uh, is key. And it's also, I think, you know, once you've been through a storm like that, whether it's real or figurative, like, you know, cancer in your family or marital distress or business stress, it tempers you for life, you know. Yeah. It's, we need storms in our life to, to give us the resilience yeah. to go the distance. And I think one of the biggest mistakes with our education now is that we try and avoid kids going through storms. And when, when they become adults, they have no coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, well, we... Oh, it's, a, it's definitely an opinion of mine, but I definitely think we baby people too much. Mm. Yeah, and it's definitely that. It's like I feel as a people, and even like as me, it's like we're we're weakening ourselves. It's like we're not we're losing that. It's like the Russians. You look at the yeah. Russians. You're like these are tough men. You know what I mean? And they've got that toughness for a reason. And it's like I think, yeah, we're definitely um, definitely. I think everyone's just getting a little bit too sensitive. And and through that, it's just dis, it's just that disconnection that we're, we're just everyone's be, not everyone, but a lot of society itself is becoming so disconnected. And I think for me, I know for me myself, I need to need those situations. I need to get into that raw. I need to get into my mind and push myself and get. I always call it. Um, I do it when I'm running. It's a state of achievement, and it's like I run till I'm done, and then I say to myself, "That's halfway." So the next half part that I'm running. That is where my mind's going to. That's where my mind's so stressed, and where I don't know that my body can do that. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. And that's where I have all my learning. And I find when I do that, it just domino effects throughout my whole life. You know what I mean. And it's like so I love getting into those raw situations. You know what I mean? Because that's what, that's where I learn so much, and like that's where you do learn. And I and I feel like I know for myself, maybe it's just because I've done it um, a few times or so many times that, and that's where all my learnings come, come from. I and yeah, I just, I feel that I need to get into that every so often. It's like when I find I'm losing myself or like I'm getting out of balance in life, I find that's a great way to ground myself, to go challenge myself, to go put myself in a raw situation. I'm stripped of everything. And then suddenly that responsibility comes back where only I can do it. No one else can do it for me. And I find it just domino effects throughout my whole life. Yeah. You know, it's, so? it's, I mean, it's one of, I think the word is hormesis. I can't remember the exact meaning of it, but basically it's imagine you're rubbing your knuckles across a brick wall and you do that for an hour a day it's uncomfortable but after a week you developed calluses on the back of your hand and you've developed a, a new strength in that skin if you rubbed it for four hours you're going to peel all the skin off and be down to meat so it's a matter of finding the amount of stress that strengthens you it doesn't turn you into a blubbering mess and i yeah. think it's always a dangerous thing as an adventurer because eventually you're going to meet something that's going to turn you into a blubbering mess and this storm in my adventure career the storm and then the 200k of crevassing were probably both equal parts too much yeah you know, they, they almost broke me and it would have been very easy to quit the journey and turn around uh, but once I was through them, um, 
it put me in a position where I thought, man, I've got more in me than I thought I had. Yeah. You know, you, you realize you almost develop a respect for yourself. Yeah, well, that's, that is that growth. Yeah. That is that. You know what I mean? It's exactly that. It's like you're pushed to such a point that you didn't even know. That's, ex- yeah, yeah, that. that's, that's exactly that. And then now you've realized this strength. You've realized you've fa- seen this part of yourself you didn't even know you have. And then you get to be able to push it to that next level. And then imagine, you know, at the end of that whole stretch, you're at 9,000 feet. The pole is 2,500 K away, but there's no crevassing between you and there. And and you've now got kites, the magic of these kites to pull you the whole way there. So the next day you put your skis on, pop a kite up, and you cover 40, 50, 60 kilometers. And then the next day you do 70 and then 80 and you start feeling the miles slip away and go, man, I, I just might make it to the pole. Yeah. So would you say it just got, so three days in, you hit this storm that just nearly just, just ripped you apart. And then you had to crev- cross the crevasses. And so this was the 14 days of just complete stress. And what was the previous record? Uh, 67 days. 67 days. So you, now you have, after this 14 days, did you still have the record in sight? Were you still on... Oh, no. I think at this point I, I was just like, I'd be happy to be the first Australian to do solo and support it. The record had become unimportant. And also, like I thought, if it's taken me 14 days to do 200K, I've got 3,228 kilometres left. I'm going to be lucky to get my food to last to the pole. Yeah. Unless something changes. So... Anyway, I started doing a, a daily routine where I would get up, cook breakfast, have a hot drink, pack the sled, and then I'd travel for about eight hours and then put the tent up, sleep for about eight, about eight hours, and then keep going. So that routine, because it's 24-hour sunlight, the timing would change, yeah. but you're basically having eight hours work, eight hours sleep. Eight hours work. With probably hours. three or four hours dicking around in between. Yeah. Then... Um, I can't remember the exact timing, but let's just try and work back here. I, I had 75 days worth of food in my sled. I had this tragedy day um, about 20 days in where the back, I had some trailing sleds behind the main sled, uh, the canvas tore while I was kiting, and 70 kilometres later I realised I'd lost two weeks' worth of food. <gasps> so I'm down now to... It was actually exactly 53 days worth of food left uh, from start point. I'd lost, um, yeah, 14 days or something. So then I look at it and go, man, my chances of making it to the South Pole without needing help are almost nil, let alone my chances of crossing the continent unsupported because I've just lost two weeks worth of food. So I put some skis on and GPS marked where the sleds were and then skied back upwind without a kite looking for food. And I, and I would find, like, a Mars bar here, a pecan nut here, a protein powder sachet here, but I started to work out that obviously the sled had disgorged its food over such a long period with the slamming of the ice that I, it was costing me more in calories to find the food than I was actually getting. Yeah. So 16K from the sleds... I made the decision to to head back. So I I ski back to the sleds 
and I broke down because I realised I'd worked so hard, I'd survived the storm, I'd made it up the glacier, and then I'd made this terrible mistake where okay. I trusted this canvas. Yeah, one um, oh, little mistake. One little mistake, and, and the record was probably going to be impossible. So I went went to bed that night and thought, okay, how do I how do I find a solution here? Maybe I can maybe I can survive on three thousand calories a day. So the next morning, I got up, put my boots on, had half breakfast, um, pushed, had half lunch, pushed, had half dinner, felt okay. I'd made about eighty kilometers, and um, did it again the next day, did it again the third day, and started to to really I broke some gear that third day, and at the end of the day, I realised I'd I'd my bearing was wrong, I'd I'd navigated wrong, cost myself some distance to correct. A navigational error and then realized i was making mistakes and looking like crap yeah is it at this stage is your body um doing such work every day are you in the stress on your body is it just fatiguing you as well naturally even now that you've dropped down in food but like as in like the physical stress on your body you know you're doing this day in day out i know you've trained for it but like then now you're actually in the challenge like how hard was that just for your body was yeah, that just, I mean, a, just as much an endurance race. Yeah, it's brutal. It's like an endurance. Imagine you're doing two marathons a day in a cold environment. You're burning nine thousand kilocalorie, and you can only absorb six thousand. So, if you're eating six thousand calories, you're losing weight every day, anywhere no from two hundred to five hundred grams a day. So then I ring home, and Sarah's like, "What the hell's wrong with you?" Because I was slurring my speech. She said, "You sound drunk." And I said, I've dropped my calories to try and stretch my food to get across. And she said, oh, mate, it's not working. You sound awful. Go back to full ration. Find another way. So having someone on the sideline to say, mate, you don't sound yeah. good was so valuable. So then I, I thought, man, I wonder if I can roll the clock, which rolling the clock is where in 24-hour daylight situation – you go to full ration. So I got up the next morning, ate a full breakfast, and then packed the sled and just mentally said, I'm going to go till I collapse. I do, I do that in the gym all the time. So, I do, I do, I'm addicted to doing that. I don't know why. Just go and Until go. Until my go. eyes go on the back of my head. I yeah. don't know why I do I've passed out a lot of times in gyms. <laughs> I don't know why I do it. You'd be perfect, perfect yeah. down there. And yeah. So anyway, that first day, I... I I covered an incredible amount of distance and I'd have to look at my diary to check, but um, 16 hours. So I managed to travel for twice any other previous day and then I set up the tent, had a full meal, slept for four hours, set the alarm, woke up feeling like crap, Yeah. put the boots on, packed the sled, did it again. What are you eating? Are you um, eating like dehydrated meals and you're rehydrating them with, yeah it's snow that you're boiling and this yeah 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 pretty much and then a lot of butter like just chocking down the you pure need, fat you need those fats to keep your body warm yeah I, I, that was a big learning thing for me in the arctic that especially with the surfing it's like if you didn't eat those fats especially animal fats yeah it's just like you'd last half an hour in the surf no, where no you go surfing for five six hours and be sweating if you if you have those animal fats yeah you need that that just to keep the fires burning yeah so lots of fat and then anyway so the second night uh i've done two 16 hour days with a four hour gap between and i then sleep for eight hours 
So that's the end of the first cycle. So 16 hours on, four hours off, 16 hours on, eight hours sleep. And I thought, oh, man, I can probably do this two or three times. Um, yeah, and what, just it, to, what it just was to doing, try and jump you up. It was jumping my daily mileage massively yeah. and stretching out my food. I was still on full ration, but I wasn't sleeping as much. But so I was making distance. Anyway, I, I managed to do this for ten solid cycles. So sixteen, four off, sixteen, eight off. Do that for ten cycles. Every night, are you calculating your distance and how like? much you're going how much you need to go as in like okay like tomorrow i need to do this amount of distance were you keeping the record within sight or well at this point i'd forgotten about the record it was just about trying to get across with 53 days food i'm like man i i just want to get across i don't want support and um anyway then i made another big mistake um i the wind was fairly solid I was tired and I'd laid an 11-metre kite into the snow and I was running the lines back. I'd clipped the kite to the front of the sled thinking it was heavy enough to hold the kite and I looked upwind and there was this, like, line of white horses running towards me. I thought, what the hell is that? And it it was what they call a pitterack or a a storm front coming through and I started running towards the kite to jump on the kite because I knew if the storm front hit, the kite would self-launch yeah. and then I'd lose the sled. Anyway, I'm halfway to the kite and the storm passes me and hits and I, I just get my hands on the kite, but it's ripped out of my grasp and the kite launches. Then I turn around and the sled is airborne about a metre off the ground, coming at me at speed <gasps> and I either get out of the way or jump on it and if i jump on it i risk breaking a leg but if i don't jump on it the sap phone's in it i'll have no way to ask for help i'm out there until i die of exposure so i jump on the sled and next minute we're racing across greenland with a kite out of control sorry not greenland antarctica wrong continent wrong adventure um racing off and man i'm hanging on to this slippery bloody boob sled it rolls over onto its back and then suddenly I'm, I'm underneath the sled getting dragged, just trying to hang on and then suddenly everything goes silent. And what's happened is the, as it's rolled over, the sled spun and the four kite lines have hit the only bit of metal on the sled, which is where the runners are. Yeah. And it's got caught between the plastic runner and the guide and that's cut the strings. Uh. So I've lost the 11 metre kite. And I'm sitting there going, man, that was as stupid as it gets. That could have been the end again. So I roll the sled over and there's a bit of damage. But, you know, I'm alive. I've lost my main kite, a beautiful kite. It's gone into the distance. Never to be seen again. And do you reckon you're just getting complacent? Like, what 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 happened in your mind after this? Like, well, you being hard on yourself? I was just, yeah, I was pretty hard on myself. But I I was pushing so hard to make up the distance. Yeah just getting tired, making mistakes, and then it, it continued, you know. You're like, It meant that uh, when the wind was in the range that I needed for the 11-metre kite, you either run a smaller kite and go slower or you, you run a bigger kite and go faster but out of control. 
And when you're running a bigger kite, you, you tend to run it high. You keep it more over your head so that yeah. the wind goes through it and you're not going as fast. Problem with that, with the type of gear I had, it was it kept pulling my jacket up and exposing my belly. Yeah. And so the next day the wind was strong. I was running too big a kite and I did it all day. And then that night I dropped the kite, pack away the kite, and then as I take off my waistband with the hook on it that connects to the kite i felt something metallic hit my belly and it felt like metal on metal and then i lift my jacket up and the whole of my belly is completely frozen a frozen solid like like a steak you're kidding and i've just realized man i've just got a horrific frost injury frostbite injury on my stomach and over the next two weeks the whole belly died and i ended up cutting away chunks of flesh with the leatherman and the Americans who I is that now, to, is that the training that you had for frostbite is to cut it away so well, it doesn't no, spread. It's I, like why did you? I was cutting it away because it was rubbing on my kite harness every day, yeah. and I taped it up, but it was just stinking like rotten. So flesh. your stomach, your skin on your stomach from this one day has gotten frozen. So it's been frozen all day. So it's gone into frostbite, and then so that's dead skin now. That is dead. Dead skin, dead cells, and it has started to rot on your body. Your skin is actually rotting. Well, skin, fat, and muscle. Like, it it was So how thick do you... Like, you're saying you're cutting away parts of it. Oh, the left-hand side, like, you're cutting away 50-cent chunks of fat, meat, muscle. Like, it was... Like, how deep? Disgusting. Oh, like, a centimetre deep through, through the skin and... Um, Did it hurt as you're cutting? Like it, it nah, was the, the, the only that? the only time it hurt, it hurt was when it defrosted that first night. It felt like the edge, the middle was dead. Like it was so frozen that the cells were all damaged. But the edge of that frost injury felt like a blowtorch getting run all around it, and that was agonising that first night. And I, I had some painkillers, so I'd taken them to try and help me sleep and. But also thinking, man, have I made another mistake that's going to end this journey? The Americans, I stupidly put uh, on on a blog post, I put a photo of my stomach about two weeks later. I'd kept pretty quiet about it because, A, I felt like an idiot. According to Matty Manhair, I'd, I'd failed the course. I'd made yeah. a stupid mistake. But um, I also... Um, you know, realise that this could end the trip. I'm losing, I'm desperately short on calories, I'm pushing hard and I'm pouring protein out of my stomach now. Like every day, my the top of my pants is wet with protein and pus and the odour was freaking horrific. Is it getting infected? Are you be, getting, be careful of infection? Yeah, getting infected. And, um, and so are you feeling this through your body as in any fever set in or what no, are you doing to felt, fight the infection? I felt pretty clean. I, I was just cleaning it every night and cutting any dead tissue away and then i got a message from the americans saying that they wanted to pick me up how did you know to cut it out is that because you're a vet yeah i think the the veterinary knowledge is crucial for me because i i think i can skirt the edges of human endurance better because i have such an understanding of the physiology and um you know pain management infection management um nutrition all of that stuff gives me a real advantage when skirting the edge of endurance yeah um so you know when i when i got this message from the american base saying listen this is an injury that you need to be extracted for and treated i kind of realized 
wow, this is actually worse. I've kind of minimized it in my mind, but this wound needs to be treated carefully. So I started to to look after it a bit more. But, you know, by now I'd realized that this roll in the clock was, was getting me ahead of the game. I was now getting to a point where with good management I could make it to the pole. How many days in did the – how many days was it when the frost hit? And then it's you've dealt with it for two weeks. So what, what days are you at here? So I think I lost the food on, on day 20, lost yeah. the kite probably day 24, and then the frost injury was probably day 27. And by the time I got to the pole, it was starting to heal. So, you know, 41, day 41, I got to the pole. Um, oh, day 44, I think, yeah, I got to the pole. Um, oh, crap. So you've, when you said it started to heal and you're dealing this with for this for two weeks... Like, what's the healing process? Like, you're literally cutting out dead skin. Is your body just building new, new well, skin? Well, this is it? what amazed me, that the fact that the human body in a zero-humidity environment um, with under extreme duress, like I'm pushing my body as hard as I've ever pushed it, and then I'm cutting away dead flesh, and then looking at it going 10 days in, man, this thing is trying to heal. This is ridiculous. Yeah. By the time I got to the pole, um, they'd said, listen, we'll get a doctor to see you at the pole. I got to the pole and said, I don't need a doctor, I'm healing. Yeah. I'll, I'll you see are a, a doctor. I'll see, yeah, I'll see a doctor <laughs> at the other end. And if, then, you, if you saw a doctor, would that suddenly be assisted? No, the, the cool thing. record thing? You, you could show them a wound, and as long as they didn't treat it, if they treated it, then you're done, you're out. Assist, but yeah. they can look at it and go, yeah, you're fine. And, and that's the... The shame with Henry Worsley, if they'd landed a doctor next to him and said, mate, something's wrong with you, let's take a blood sample. We can take from you and, and not affect your unsupported status. If they checked that blood sample, they would have seen he'd had a ruptured stomach and peritonitis and probably pulled him out days earlier and saved his life, but he basically pulled this leg till he died. So th- this is the guy that attempted your world record and died doing it. There was a question there that I wanted to ask you. Did you... When that happens, so you've obviously, and we'll get to the, the end of um, your your world record attempt, I mean your world record set setting it, but now you've set this world record and people are trying to beat it and putting their lives at risk and someone's actually died trying to beat your world record. Have Do you take any responsibility on for that? Or like what what happens in your mind when someone's trying to attempt your record and when someone actually, like, dies, like, what process happens in your well, mind? Well, it's really tricky because I don't think any of us, any anyone going down there or, or a similar environment really focuses on the records. I mean, the records really are a media. They're a way of recognising the journey, getting funding for the next one, you know, ranking where you sit amongst the global adventure explorers com- of the time, the yeah. adventure community, but... I don't think anyone goes down there going, hey, I'm just going to break a record. You're really down there to do a journey that you've dreamt about for a long time or planned. And from Henry's point of view, I don't think he was really chasing the solo unsupported crossing record. He just wanted to to be the first guy to walk from one side to the other without kite power. Yeah. So he, he was doing a much tougher journey than me, albeit 2,000 kilometres shorter, but it was all manhole because he's not a kite flyer 
and you know that that's brutal yeah absolutely brutal so what a tough man to yeah. do to, for his stomach to go so long and ah it's crazy this is the thing it's like oh, just make sure to what i find crazy is what you learn what the human body is capable of and i think we forget about it i do yeah. the i do the wim hof breathing and do the do the cold yeah. and, and just and I, I say to people, it's as simple as just teaching your body to be uncomfortable because we are so comfortable. And just even in that, it just toughens you up so much in so many ways because yeah. you end up being fine in such extreme situations just because you know you're okay. You've just yeah, learned yeah. that it's okay. And, that, and that's the whole thing, you know, choosing choosing discomfort is good for you. Yeah. It's not, you know, getting across that barrier. You don't have to be comfortable all the time. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so wrapping up the end of this journey... Uh, the amazing thing was through brutalizing myself and rolling the clock, I managed to get to the pole on day 44 and then hit what we call a wind hole, which is where there's just no wind. And at that point I had um, nine days worth of food left. So once you hit the pole, so you've come in, you hit the pole, so being the center, and then now you're getting, now you're doing the, the, the crossing so basically you can't go straight across because of the russians or because of whatever different airspace or different yeah you imagine it i've come in at 12 o'clock i've made it to the pole at the center of the clock i want to go out at six o'clock but i'm not allowed to so i've got to come out at um say eight o'clock yeah now the eight o'clock leg is shorter it's 1130 kilometers yeah and i've got nine days worth of food so my average distance per day at that point's only about 80 kilometers so the the americans are looking at my daily mileage to date going mate you've got 1130 k to go you've got nine days food you need a resupply do it at the pole and it's going to be cheap if we have to drop food to you halfway to the coast it's going to cost you up to 350,000 us holy for a week's worth of food yeah and I'm sitting there in my tent going, okay, am I going to be pig-headed and hang on to this record by the skin of my teeth and tell them to F off, I'll be fine, or am I going to be sensible and take food here? And if I take food at the South Pole, it's simply a lady walking over with a bag of food, cost me a couple of thousand bucks. If I get stuck with no food, start starving between here and the edge of the continent um i'm screwed i i don't have three hundred fifty thousand. so you know i think about it overnight and the next day there's no wind and the next day i've got nine days so i'm down to eight days down to seven days you can't travel without the wind can't travel i start hauling i i haul two kilometers and realize i'm burning more calories i've just got to wait for the wind and uh anyway they I've got six days food left and I still haven't moved. And I'm starting to think, okay, if there's no wind tomorrow, I'll get a resupply. And then. And, the, and that would forfeit uh, any forfeit chance for the. Any chance for record. the record. Yeah. So I get up the next morning and walk around and there's no wind. But I get an email from Mark de Kaiser saying, 10 o'clock, you're going to get wind. Oh. And I go. Okay, okay. So I pack everything up. I lay the kite out. 10 o'clock, I've got my skis on. I'm waiting with the kite there. 
and about quarter past ten the wind comes in. And basically for the next five days, he said, listen, this is your last wind and then there's a big calm coming behind. So you have to stay with this wind all the way to the coast. Try and not sleep, try and move, stay with the wind. So I would move all day and then sleep for four hours and by then the edge of the storm would be nearly on me and then I'd get up put another kite up and kite back into the middle of the storm and then I'd go to sleep again and try and wake up before the storm passed me. That went on for five days. So now, this is a full strategy. This so is the strategy. It oh was just God. brutal. And and I'm looking at my food every day going, okay, now I've got four days, now I've got three days, now I've got two days. But the amazing thing was I managed to get to the edge of the continent in five days, 20 hours. God. Ate my last, ate my last meal on the edge of the continent, and sat there and went, just oh man, against all odds, I made every mistake you could make. Somehow, I've broken the record by and fourteen days, was and it? managed to hang on to the solo unsupported status. What was, what was that feeling of making it there, like pushing your body to such extremes? But it's not just your body; you're pushing your mind to such extremes. And you've come in by the skin of your teeth. Like you've literally come in. Now, I think what's really amazing is like with the adventure, some people could say, oh, you're so reckless, but you're actually not because everything, you had everything so planned and such a strategy in place. Like just having that person, that just that weather and everything, you know, you know what I mean? It's like that calculated risk was so calculated and you've come in at the skin of your teeth. There's always going to be, there's always going to be unforeseen circumstances and you somehow dealt with them so... Yeah, and it's funny looking back, you kind of think, you know, would I have that same clarity of thought if I was there now? But no, I think it's kind of like parts of your brain open up because the duress and the environment is there for so long that you you think clearer, you you map everything out and then just things like the lucky rabbit's foot, Mark de Kaiser. Having a guy like that just say, hey, this wind's going to come, but you're going to have to use it. You're yeah. Gonna to, you're going to have to get every single bit of puff out of this every to get bit to of, the coast. And every bit of strength that you have within yourself to to use that to use that wind. And the amazing thing was I, I didn't want to admit to the Americans how tight my food had got. So when I radioed in and said, listen, I'm here, I'm having my last meal, they said, listen, we'll get you as soon as we can, but they're in a slightly different part of Antarctica and they were stuck in a storm, couldn't get any aircraft off the ground for three days. <gasps> so um, I sat in the tent and I was scraping the sides of the sleds to get protein powder and peanuts and things and make this horrendous soup from the sides of the sled you're, you're... over that three days. Because you, your metabolic rate is absolutely on fire. You feel yeah. like you could eat a thong. Yeah. And um, to suddenly go from 6,000 kilocalorie a day to nothing... By the time the plane came three days later, I was ready to eat the tires. So you're it's, it's, fucking hell, you're crazy. It's just, <laughs> so you've you've made it, you've broken the record, but no one's there for you. But in your mind, how did that knowing that you've made it, you've radioed it in, they've got your position, so everyone knows you've you've just you've just done a world record. Like, what's that feeling knowing that you've just survived a world record like that you've made a world record that you've survived this feat you've got a world record 
Did you feel that then or was it until you came home? Because I can't, I can't get over it. You've just done this. You've done a world record. But now you've actually got another hard feat and one, probably one of the hardest sitting there for three days with no food. Yeah, that, that was brutal. But the most amazing thing about that arrival is Hercules Inlet is not even – I mean, it's a dot on the map and it's where the sea ice meets um, the land ice and yeah. that's the edge of the continent. It's, it's a bay, so – I headed for the mouth of the, like the the deepest part of the bay, because then technically I'm I've reached the ocean at the shortest point, and I'd I'd imagine this arrival in my mind for six months before I got there, and for some reason in my mind on the left hand side of this bay was a set of mountains that that mirrored the boob sled. They were like a set of boobs, like yeah. two bulging mountains. Um, you know, nice curves sitting there covered in ice and snow, but they were definitely there in my mind. And I just thought it was my mind tying in boob-like mountains because I'm visualising the endpoint of a of a breast cancer journey with this boob sled. I arrive, um, and the visibility is really bad on the last day, and we're starting to get back into crevasse country. I had a list of waypoints that I'd got from another explorer to avoid the worst of them. So I'm tacking with the kite and moving, and then finally I realise I'm a kilometre past the waypoint. I've, I've kited a K over the ice, so I'm now on sea ice. Yeah, you're on sea ice. Um, but I'm done. So I dropped the kite and put the tent up, Pack, while I'm packing the kite away, the sun comes out and the mist clears and I look to my left and there's two mountains that look like a set of boobs. And I, I've never been here before, but it is almost a mirror image of the image I built six months before sitting in Corumban on the Gold Coast. So for me, this incredible moment kind of occurred where I thought, man, there, there is a portal in our natural world that can be opened up and bent yeah. If we start using these faith eye images and believing ahead of time, the journeys are coming to pass. And I don't know, it's almost like the Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, where those kids open the wardrobe and they step into Narnia. If you start using this mental imagery and the imagination and the incredible power of the mind, and you don't need this stuff in the urban environment. We, we only get to experience it at the edges of human endurance. Yeah. at the edge of the human experience. And this is what people like you and me are trying to get across to the general public. You have to experience discomfort. You have to stretch yourself to to step and look through these windows and see this incredible thing happen where the power of the mind is really explored. And, uh, you know, that's that's what I think we're trying to say. And what you're trying to say through your podcast is, hey, it's not okay to just live a bland life. You yeah. need to get the beige out of your life, get some color in there, get some discomfort, get moving, get dreaming, and then this incredible array of stuff happens in your life. Whether it's like everything comes together. Yeah. And I always, it's just, it's just don't be scared. It's like it's fearing the unknown, and we all fear. But it's like I always say to people, when you have that fear, play a game. I always say just play a game. Make everything a game. Turn everything into a game. Whatever you're doing, it's like when I see that fear, then I, I have this game that I play. It's like when I fear it, do it. You know what I mean? Let that fear motivate me. Sit there and wonder why I fear it. You know, like is it, I like calculate that fear and then like 
wonder why, like, you know, wonder why I'm fearing it and then go into it. You know what I mean? Don't let that fear hold me back, you know? And that, that, just that mindset itself has pushed me to the most amazing moments of my life. It's just like letting that fear motivate me, going into that fear. And it's like, that's the thing. It's like people like say they're in a mundane lifestyle where they're, they're not fulfilling. And I think that's the biggest thing, fulfilling their own dreams and feeling, fulfilling their own desires is that they have this fear of like that it's not okay or that they can't, you know, like their their car payments or they're like they've got this furniture or like just there's all, they're finding excuses of things in their life why they can't go and live out their dreams. And it's like it's okay to fear it, but don't let that fear stop you. Just go into that fear, you know what I mean, and learn to go into that fear. And the more you learn to go into that fear, the more the more you step outside the box, well, your box just gets bigger and bigger and your life just gets so amazing because you're not being held back. And I think that's the thing. You're not asking for people to understand how we're wired or I'm wired. I don't understand other people's way of life, but I don't judge them for it or pretend to understand it. Yeah. Like, I, I can't understand a guy spending his whole life chasing enough wealth to buy a car that he's going to have to leave behind anyway. I don't follow that. I don't understand it, but I don't judge him for it. Nah, because if that's if that's what if that literally fulfills him, like if it's not from ego, if that's actually what fulfills him, there's definitely nothing wrong with it. It's when it's coming from ego, or when you're actually cutting yourself short. And that's the thing we we're talking about earlier. It's like we have one life here, and it's like, and it's fucking. It's completely crazy. If we cut ourselves short, when we have this one life, this one chance, this one existence, these these chances that we have of opportunity in our life and we don't take them, you know what I mean, through fear. I think it's completely crazy. It's like I love dancing, right? I fucking, I can't dance, but I love dancing. And I was just at this um, festival up north and I was watching this band that really good to dance to and no one was dancing and I had this fear I can't just go and dance. I have this fear of all these people looking at me and I'm like, why would I cut myself short, not do something I want to do because I have fear, fear of, of rejection. Yeah, fear of judgment, fear of rejection. And I'm like, wow, I've got this one, I've got this opportunity to really enjoy myself here. Just let it go. Why would I? And, and if you actually think about it, we're fucking insane. It is so crazy that we would not do what we want to do because we're a little bit scared. You know what I mean? And it's just like, let it's it's so simple. Just let that fear motivate you. Let that fear push you out of your comfort zone. Just play a game with it. When you notice that, well, that's what I do anyway. We all have different things. But what I do is when I notice I have that fear of something, then it's like a dare. It's like, you know, yeah, like, yeah. now I dare myself to do it. You know what I mean? And it's just like, the more I do that, the less I fear. And the I more I get to be myself. Like you, you we all know people who, who have less inhibition publicly and you kind of envy them yeah it's like wow they really don't care what people think and that's refreshing yeah in a way and i I suppose from an adventure point of view i don't really care what people think but i'm the same i I wouldn't get up onto a dance stage by myself so i mean the probably the take-home message and we'll wrap this one up uh on this is my passion for people is just to dream big and plan well yeah, that's good and plan well, and that's something that you've really shown that you've done. Can, can I, one last, what was it like? So you've had these three days now with no food after you've done this. This Did you let them know? 
when they picked you up. Yeah. You needed a feed. Yeah, it was so funny. So they, they arranged this incredible feed. It was like steak with a three-star chef in the Union Glacier base, and it was probably an hour flight from where I got picked up. Yeah. And you land, and they come off, and the first lady to meet me was the camp doctor, and she said, listen, I need to examine your stomach. And I said, listen, I need to fill my stomach, and then you can examine my stomach. So we, I said, you can come with me to the mess tent. So we went straight to the mess tent, and there was steak, chips, trifle, all this rich food, which didn't agree. You know, it looked great at the time, but... Yeah. yeah, it was not good after you've eaten it because you've been on dehydes for, you know, 60 days total, yeah. you know, including your waiting and everything. Um, but she lifted my clothing and, and just checked the wound. I said, man, that, that's incredible. That is healing. Yeah. So she was like, man, that, that could have been a showstopper. You, you managed it really well. Yeah. So, you know, at that point, you, you're back with people. There's heaps of activity. There was a guy who had walked from the South Pole and he, he looked horrendous, a British explorer. And he said to me, how many kilometres have you just done? And I said, um, oh, 3,428. And he's like, man, I just walked 1,100 and you look great. And I'm like, yeah, I feel pretty good now that I've had a feed. I was starving prior to that. Said, when was your last meal? And I said, oh, we worked it out about 72 hours prior. And he's like, man, that's nuts. And, you know, it was this amazing feeling that, wow, we have walked the line as close as you can and it's paid off and and I'm here to adventure another day, which is awesome. That's kind of the the line of extreme adventuring is like the line is like one step to the side is death or just craziness, you know what I mean? It's like it's a fine line, the line that you walk, you know. Um, What was your sense of accomplishment what did that feel like when you're I back the, and you the, come back with your family and you've actually done this amazing, did it just feel like, well, that's something you've done or did you actually like just feel like, what did that, the thing that your name is in the world record books, what does that feel like? Yeah, I think for me, the single biggest achievement was just getting home safe. Yeah. Like your, your overwhelming feeling is you don't really care about the, the record because some guy could step up next winter and or next summer and smash it yeah you know somebody might be tougher than you or make better decisions than you and um you know in fact three years later frederick de peon an incredible canadian guy got this incredible contrary wind that blew him up the crevasse field and he hauled kites and did what took me 14 days and a day and a half um using kite power and then he looked like he was going to knock 20 days off my record. Oh, my God. And then halfway across, he, he snapped his sled in half. <gasps> and he was out. So, you know, it's this combination of uh, a feeling that, hey, I'm super glad to be home, super glad I'm safe and get to be a dad and a husband again, um, a friend, and uh, the record could fall at any moment. So you, you don't tend to get too attached to it, but... But it does give you a measure of, wow, there were some things we did right in the prep on that journey mentally, who we stood for. And I think, you know, if I'm trying to advise someone how to get the best out of their endurance, the number one thing is knowing why you're there in the first place. And I think being aligned with something you believe in um, is rocket fuel. And and that's where the records come from. Yeah. 
So how much did you did you raise for breast breast cancer? I think we've raised so far, including that journey in Greenland, about four hundred thousand. So oh, so brilliant! Significant chunks. That's we're, amazing. We're that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, we're getting there. Everything that you, that's oh god, that's just amazing. What a what a thing to do! Just attach that to it, just to, for that drive, that extra push. Yeah, and you know, at times you got to examine that and go, "Hang on, am I being selfish here? Am I just attaching this because I know it gives me extra drive?" Or no, nah, but I, like before this journey, I'll head to Alamanda Hospital and and just sit with a round of women going through chemo, and just mentally log their faces so that when the storm comes, which I know will come, yeah, um, I can sit in the tent and go, well, "I'm not just here for myself. I'm, yeah. I'm here." to represent these women that, that mightn't have a voice at the moment because they're, they're on the bench. You know, yeah. They're, they're in a period of healing. And um, it gives me great strength, you know, to remember those faces. Yeah. And, and I know it, it doesn't always have to be the same um, charity. I know for the Sahara Crossing we represented a, a thing called the She Home, which was pulling girls out of sex slavery as young as six years of age. In, oh in the Golden Triangle, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand. And yeah. halfway across, um, you know, we were in mined sand. There were there were minefields all around. We'd had a number of guys in the expedition have nervous breakdowns just from the, the amount of mines in the area. And and I'm sitting there like, man, what are we doing this for? What the hell? And I had three girls' faces taped to the column of the buggy, like the, the neck of the buggy. Yeah. And I remember feeling that urge to quit. And then I looked down and saw one of these little faces. And there it was a girl that had been pulled out the year before. And they cleaned her up, made sure she was HIV negative, and then started to get her an education and find her an alternate life. And she's sitting on my gooseneck of the buggy, grinning at me. And, and I could just easily get rocket fuel and go, well, we're not quitting. You know, she didn't have a chance to quit, and neither do we. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's nearly brought tears to my eyes. That's insane. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it, um, it definitely, uh, you know, every journey, I think, when, you, when you're when working at that level of long-term endurance, yeah, um, you've got to examine your reasons for being there. And what I call, um, you know, your identity you have to know your identity going into it so know who you are as a man um who you are as a dad husband businessman whatever it is um but also who you stand for who's your tribe why am i here and so when the storm comes you can stand knowing yeah stand with your shield high yeah yeah So, so um this this everything that you just did for your world record and you, you recorded it um and it was edited up and how how do people see what you've done yeah i mean that one was a, a phenomenal movie 47 below that yeah um that's does, on nat geographic yeah nat geo um uh I, you know we should pull our finger out and get it on vimeo i'll this is an incentive for me to get it on vimeo and then we'll set up a link to it so if you google 47 below we'll have it on vimeo yeah, and, and it, so people can download it. Yeah, and it comes. I think if you subscribe to Nat Geo, I think they might have it on. Yeah, they've definitely got it on on Nat Geo Adventure Channel. Yeah, and so, so this this next. Um, so what's the difference between the last one and this next one? So it's a longer route. Um, when are you, and you're training for this now? When are you setting off for this one? 
So November 1st, I fly to Cape Town, and then November 5th, the big Aleutian aircraft will drop me in exactly the same spot. The difference is this time we're taking trucks around the glacier, so yeah. I'll get driven to the top and get dropped off where Faisal's little masturbatory tent was. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. At Thor's Hammer. So I start literally where where that storm tent was, and then it's basically an attempt to be the first Australian to get to the pole of inaccessibility, which is um, about 1,100 kilometres from Thor's Hammer yeah. in a direct line into the centre of Antarctica. So it's the most remote point. And for some reason, the Russians have a statue of Lenin there that they dust off every summer. Yeah. So I get to hug Lenin on the way past. And uh, then from the statue of Lenin, nearly 1,000 kilometres to the pole, um, get to the pole for the second time. And then those two legs, I'm not too worried about. It'll, it'll be brutal, but there's no crevassing and the wind looks like it's in my favour. It'll just be pounding ground, get settled. Then leg three is where it really starts getting difficult. So that that is the attempt to go from the pole to the top of Dome Argus. So Dome Argus is the highest point on the Antarctic Plateau. It's 14,000 feet, the coldest naturally occurring place on planet Earth. And yeah. it's That's brutally brutal. cold. And brutally the cold. difference with this trip to your first one, you're ending it with the hardest challenge yeah so this one getting to the top of dome argus will be uh tough because it it's going to require a lot of man hauling because there's no wind yeah up there so um probably split loading i'll have two sleds so run one sled 3k up ski back another 3k up and then do it again and just hope i can do that for 300 kilometers because i think the last 300 kilometers to the top of dome is going to be all manpower and then when I get to the top of Dome A, it's this incredible run um, in a circular route all the way back to the start point where I get picked up by the Russians. And that's using the rotation of the earth to create small movements of wind that I can ride the whole way home, 2,500 kilometres. You're kidding crazy, me. Crazy. So that, and that's why this timing's so crucial, yeah. leaving on this date? Yeah, yeah. I've got to, got to pick those winds up. Yeah. And what's the... What's the current world record for this? Has someone done it before? So, yeah, it's a hard one. Rune Getty is a really tough Special Forces soldier, the Spetsnaz um, Norwegian soldier, set a 4,817-kilometre record in uh, about 1985. It's never been bettered. But then Mike Horn claims a 5,200-kilometre journey. That's who just did it? Yeah. And he was on Joe Rogan? Yeah, Joe, Joe Rogan, the... The issue, like Mike's phenomenal and he's, he's done an incredible journey, but he took a meal at the South Pole. So you, you can't take a meal at the South Pole and claim to be unsupported. Yeah, uh, yeah. I heard that there was a hiccup uh, with that. He's definitely, yeah, he's done an amazing journey and that and big ups to him because that's, that's well, it's just death-defying, you know? Yeah, and it is, the, just his planning was phenomenal. His execution was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but there's a little grey area there where there's yeah, room got, for someone to still get that record. Yeah, for me, uh, I would still say Rune is probably the, the record holder because he never took any support. Um, and, you know, all credit to Mike, but you can't you can't claim a status and then ignore the rules of the status. You either go, hey, it was just an adventure for adventure's sake and F the world, or you 
say I'm unsupported and for it to classify as unsupported, you can't take outside support. Yeah. So going into a warm tent, taking your jacket off, you know, taking your boots off, eating a hot meal, having a hot drink, somebody else is prepared, that's bona fide support. So God, it must be so hard when you reach the pole and there is a tent over there and you know you could get a hot meal oh, and you're mate, like, oh, it's just so for the hard. mind. It'd be, and that's the thing. It's like when you're in these situations, especially, oh, just it's like that oasis sitting there. There's an oasis. Oh, I read so many expeditions that that quit at the South Pole for nothing other than, oh man, we're done. This is too tough. Um, that I buried my passport two kilometres away from the pole and GPS marked it. I thought. I'm not going to succumb to flying out of here. I'll bury my passport and I've got to walk back and find it if I want to go home. So that that sold it. You're kidding. You're <laughs> kidding. Oh, so yeah. just thinking of, you know, getting getting yeah. a step ahead of your mind and going, and that's probably another big key, is, is trying to predict when you're going to have a weak moment and set up barriers to that happening. Yeah. And, you know, that's an example of, the South Pole with planes coming in and out is like a woman wandering around with lingerie yeah. tempting you over. You know that's coming, so what do you do to set up protection? You go yourself? around it. You yeah, even even it. that you're saying like just with the the guy masturbating in the tent. Yeah. I love that that's what he's known for now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just even like staying away from him, knowing that that's a weak, a weak point, you yeah. know? It's this game and, you, yeah, it's, it's this mind game. So, um... Uh, Jeff, it's, this has been, it's actually been amazing. Um, and if you don't mind, so, yeah, and you've just, in this, in this conversation, you've touched on so many other adventures. And this is something that um, I want to get all these recorded down, especially reading your book. So yeah. where would people find your book and what's your book called? Once again, you know, we've been really slack because I self-published and we, we basically uh, sold the book every time I did a public speaking gig. Yeah. Um, we haven't set really up a an easy way for people to get it but i mean if they contact the info page on fifth element expeditions i can mail them one but we will pull our finger out and get the movies on vimeo and the book online yeah and um, it's called a wildlife yeah wildlife Jeff Wilson. and so i've read it um well i haven't read the the end because i wanted to save that for this conversation and everything but it's an amazing book but it's the thing is it's like this story you've just told me today is one one small part of this crazy adventurous life you've lived and i that you've lived and i suppose all these other adventures have um built up to this point of setting a world record but i and as crazy as it was i've read so many wild crazy things that you've done and and i can't wait to actually record with you more and actually really get into the mind or get into the the scenarios that you've been through in these adventures because it's um well it's definitely shaped who you are as as a as a person but it's just what an adventurous life yeah it's been been very fortunate you know and i just still have great family life i'm i'm very rare in that a lot of the guys i meet in the wilderness are injured souls or have left uh, a litany of broken relationships behind them yeah and i i think i stand for the fact that you can still be an adventurer and manage healthy relationships yeah and you know find a woman or, you know, a man or whoever it is, um, find a partner who understands and compliments you. And part of my strength is, is being able to have um, honest conversations with Sarah about where I am mentally and have her 
not fatigued, uh, be a coach on the sideline. And she's done this for so many years. Um, you know, she's got so many skills uh, in this arena that uh, she's just perfect. I'm, I'm really blessed to have her there. And, and I know it's, it's a large part of my success as an adventurer is, is having her there, just pushing it. And there's times now where I stand back and I push her forward in her dream and, yeah. and I'm, I'm the guy cheering her on on the sideline. Yeah, it's that, well, it's that support, that support network. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're just so lucky. to. Well, it's a team. You're working together mm. as a team and it's a functional team and you're also someone, especially through your life experiences, you've understood balance. Yeah, and, and that's the key, I think, is going, okay, um, I can't do it all the time. And physically we can't fund it all the time. And I've been very fortunate in that we have had corporate sponsorship, but we limit that a little bit because I know if I'm taking somebody else's money, it can lead me to making a bad decision. Yeah. Um, because I'm making decisions for them rather than for my survival. So for this one, we've, um, we've funded as much as I can myself. And then the shortfall we've taken corporate money for. Yeah. Um, and gear, obviously, while there's a very ardent supporter yeah. of everything we do, and I know they support you guys, they've, they've got a real understanding of the yeah. adventure environment and what yeah. we need out there. And what's great about Wild Earth too is that they also um, give creative freedom. Yeah. So it's like, they're, yeah, they're just a great family. They're a great supportive network, and I've just come into the, the family the last um, kind of six months or, yeah, I think six months. And now that I'm back home, I'm meeting everyone now, and I'm just, I can't get over how, what a great company it actually is. Yeah, and they've done so well in there. You know, whilst there's not a known adventurer like a Tim Jarvis or someone in the background doing their buying, uh, they're so clever at picking equipment that is robust and what would last yeah. the distance that... um I pretty much go in there and go, hang on, everything on the shelf is something that I would take into the wilderness with confidence. So, yeah, um, yeah they've, they've done a brilliant job in their gear selection. So um, for anyone out there going, hey, what do I need to do? Just get on the wildest site, man. It's easy. Yeah. It's all of the stuff on there is stuff that I would trust. And if you question it, all the people on the floor, they're all advent. That's what I loved about it. I walk in there and the people that are working there are all extreme adventurers, you know? Yeah. That's what that's what i really liked about it and so you can actually ask them about the gear and like they know the gear because they use the gear and it's like that's yeah that's what's really cool but hey let's um let's wrap this up because well we've been going for two and a half hours and this is just amazing but i can't wait to to get you back here because i want to hear all these crazy stories and um yeah if you're free to do this again i know it's going to be hard to catch you in and out of all these adventures you do and i think um one thing that I really want to say is when you do go um, on the second and then leave on the second, then land on the fifth of November. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think our prayers are all going to be with you, and I think you know, just well, we don't need to tell you what to do. Like, like you've got this. Yeah, that's this exciting, is... and I'd love to touch base with you from down there because we'll have our best communication yet, thanks to Pivotel Satellite. They've really hooked us up. So oh, that would be insane. We'll definitely make uh, make a point of touching base at some of the milestones for yeah. you because um i you know i just support anyone who is 
trying to showcase guys who are stretching, guys and girls who are stretching the boundaries and getting people motivated to move. You know, like we've only got one life, let's live it. As a, yeah, I say that all the time. I even say that to myself. I got to remind myself all the time. You know what I mean? And um, I get anxiety. <laughs> I definitely get anxiety when I'm not living my truth. Yeah. You know what I mean? I freak out. I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing something I don't want to do? And there's you know period. I mean? There's definitely periods where you knuckle down and you have to take your medicine. Yeah. Well, you, you got know, to to get those it. goals because we still need those challenges in life throughout. But it's like there's always a bigger picture. And there's always to do something for my for myself or for my dreams. You know. And I think yeah, as long as you you're building those faith images of where you want to be and and being specific and uh, using those tools, you'll get there. Yeah. Yeah, everyone at home, take this on board. Live out your dreams. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Right. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks so much, Jeff. So if you like this episode, feel free to share it. Go on iTunes, leave a star rating, leave a comment. Now, Jeff's going to be coming back again. So if you guys have any questions for him, shoot me an email, Aaron underscore Shanks on Instagram or diariesofthewildones.com. Send me an email with any questions you have for him. Enjoy, guys. Have fun. I do it like a double.